For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts. Talking about the weather and talking about the wind, and the weather certainly isn't being kind so far to the President of the United States of America, Joe Biden. Touchdown in Belfast last night, the start of an historic four-day trip to Ireland, and all of the headlines this morning make for great reading. Air Force One as an E-I-R-E. Joe Brawley's got to be the best of them, though, on the front of the star today. Rain-soaked reception for Biden as Air Force One lands. It's an enormous uh, plane, Air Force One. I guess it's a, a 747, I imagine, but it's just huge when you see just one person standing in the doorway in the stairwell. But the Irish um, rain greeted Joe off the plane, uh, and of course he was north of the border, uh, will be travelling south of the border now, um, apparently straight to meet the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar um, before he jumps on Marine One for a hop to County Loud. I assume that will happen in the Chopperoo. Uh, with all of the winds and what have you. So he's off to County Loud then and he'll be spending the afternoon and evening in Carlingford and Dundalk and everybody's up in a heap and so excited for him to be going back to visit his roots, apparently. And then, of course, he will hook up then tomorrow with the likes of President Michael D. Higgins, plant a tree, apparently, uh, meet the Taoiseach and Farmley, and then we'll speak to the doll uh, tomorrow afternoon. So Gale to the Chief is another headline. Biden touches down with a pledge of cash to end the Brexit standoff. Um, you know, if you get the Northern Ireland uh, protocol sorted and if you get people back to work in Stormont, the Americans will give you money. So that's an interesting one. Talking about giving money or not giving money or not giving help. Uh, one of the sidebar stories that interested me with regards to the, the visit of the American president is all of the homeless people and all of their tents were removed from Dublin's Phoenix Park at the weekend ahead of Joe Biden's visits, you just couldn't be showing that side of Ireland, I suppose. It's like the cleaning up and the painting and the sanitizing of hospitals when politicians arrive in them. They do the same when a president arrives, make sure that everything unsightly is taken out of the way so we don't give a, an accurate, true picture of life in Ireland. And meanwhile, the Mail this morning is saying that the total number of refugees in tents uh, doubles in a few weeks. And of course, we've got refugees in tents and Irish people and Irish families uh, have been in tents for quite some time as it is. So that's on the increase because more and more are coming in and there's less places for them to actually live. And we've got more uh, international protection applicants uh, continuing to come into the country with nowhere for them to live. But having said all of that, with regards to housing, Cork City Council continues to say that their housing uh, is, uh, or at least the amount that they intend building or acquiring, is on target. Uh, so that's an interesting one that makes the front of this morning's uh, echo. Taken away too young is the story making the sun today. We're talking about the two crash victims who died at the age of 14, Lucas Joyce and Kirsty Bowen. There was four in the car um, and one is very seriously injured following that collision in Headford at a quarter to six in the morning. Um, and uh, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy because it's added to the fact that they're showing photographs sorry, of uh, flowers left at the damaged tree where the car hit and indeed photographs of the victims as well. But the mail this morning says that there's speculation or fears that it was an online dare led to the crash that killed the teenagers. Now, they're not certain about this, but they're saying that there is an amount of dares online now that teenagers are engaging in. And a guard investigation into the deaths of the two teenagers in the County Galway crash will examine if social media challenges or indeed a specific social media challenge played a role in the tragedy. 
Um, we're talking about stuff an awful lot more serious now than the ice bucket challenge online. You know, this can be some of the challenges now that people engage in, particularly young people, are quite dangerous. And they're suggesting this morning uh, that they may um, have been engaging in some kind of uh, um, a challenge because videos are taken then. Social media is is making up part of the investigation because there's been some videos posted in the past, apparently, which showed that the teenagers were active and involved in certain challenges on various platforms, like many other people of their age. So that's part of the guard investigation. Oh my God, we live in a very dangerous world, don't we? Where I suppose you could see 14-year-olds who think that they're going to live forever and they're invincible. And of course, that isn't the case for any of us. I'll come back to this other story a little later on this morning, but I got wind of it at the back end of last week, so I was waiting for it to appear in court, and it has done. It's a story of a man with five different aliases who's been charged in connection with luxury car thefts, and he's alleged to have used an Apple AirTag to track the cars that he allegedly wanted to steal. Now, I'm not going to drill into it too much now because I will be coming back to it, but it's the story of uh, Rosmarine Serban, a 46-year-old, and he has already admitted viewing cars that were being sold privately. And the owners say that they were told by this Romanian father of four that he wanted to test drive their vehicles before buying them. It's alleged then that these uh, Apple AirTags were left in the cars to track the cars and their whereabouts, right? Uh, So he then and an accomplice are alleged to have collected the cars of the owners' homes and either cloned or swapped the spare keys for the cars that they were test driving. Um, and also these air tags come into air tags come into play because the wrapping from a new air tag was found in one of the stolen cars. Now seven car keys were also found. Um, the guardy also found on an iPhone messages from various injured parties. I can't say any more than that because I pretty much have to stick to what was said in court. Injured parties to me would make me assume that there were people whose cars were at play here. Um, but uh, they also discovered that, incidentally, that he wasn't Spanish, apparently. He had claimed to have been Spanish, uh, as he had claimed when arrested. Uh, they discovered that he was actually Romanian and that he also had a European arrest warrant out from. So that's just part. It's become very, very, very clever now uh, and, and, and very technical. And also, you know, the use of tech now with regards to robberies and what have you. It's very much coming to the fore and you're seeing it in the courts these days. These, of course, are allegations before the courts and I'll come back to it a little later on this morning. But one other thing that's happening in the courts is that the minimum jail term for rape is now 10 years. And Simon Harris has now said that this is, you know, confirmed. Uh, so if we if we continue to see jail terms for somebody convicted of rape below 10 years... We should be very angry about it because it shouldn't be that way. Um, also, there is a team, and I'll also come back to this story hopefully later on this morning with Councillor Colm Kelleher because there is a delegation going from Cork City to Portugal on a fact-finding trip next month. Uh, it'll be five city councillors, the guards, the HSE officials. They're going visiting two different safe injection facility sites because, of course, we will get one in Cork, and I guess they want to see how well it's done in Lisbon. And, of course, that's a bone of contention for two people. I think society is very much split on this as to whether you know this is a good idea or not. But I guess if you go and see how it's working in Lisbon, you might get an idea how it might work here if it were to happen here. Would you believe that our compo culture has not gone away on Leaside? Uh, and Cork Council, and in the county council, has confirmed that they have paid out 5.6 million euro in compensation-related injuries for footpath injuries 
um, over the past four years. This has nothing to do with roads now or stairwells or slipping in public authority buildings or slipping anywhere. It's dodgy footpaths, 5.6 in the last uh, four years. So imagine for people who, like say for instance, if you were in some way, if you had a disability, Think about how bad the footpaths must be for people with a disability or people in a wheelchair or people walking with sticks or with crutches or whatever, or elderly people. Don't even get me started on the state of our roads. Wouldn't it be much better if our footpaths were in top-class condition rather than spending nearly six million in compensation cases over the last four years? I don't know what kind of injuries. I didn't get to see that in the papers this morning. We'll have some more, probably not today, but possibly before the end of the week on Piper's Funfair in Kinsale because... Campaigners now are planning a rally to protest the decision uh, with regards to uh, the Cork Fun Fair not being allowed to return to Kinsale. So hopefully there'll be more news on that as well um, over the next couple of days because there's a protest planned for the weekend. Did you know that the price of um, used cars or pre-owned cars or pre-loved cars or second-hand cars, call them whatever you want, have gone has gone through the roof? This morning, the examiner and indeed uh, Dundee are quoted as saying that used car prices have risen over 75%. Check that out. Could that be right? 75% compared to pre-pandemic times. Some of this had to do with the non-availability of chips for new cars. I think they're managing to get a grip on that now. But second-hand car prices have gone through the roof. Uh, and every month they're saying that they're increasing in prices. In fact, Dundee has a, a breakdown of quarter by quarter by quarter. And that's all very well. I'm not going to blind you with numbers. But one interesting statistic is the amount of EVs, electric cars, that have been registered. Apparently, I heard someone this morning that 40% of new cars now being sold are electric. Which means that by 2024, I imagine... They'll be over 50% for sure, and we'll be selling more electric cars than petrol or diesel. But one thing I did notice, that CarZone have this app where they'll value your car. You put in the car reg of your car, and they'll tell you what it's worth. I believe they way overvalue the cars. I don't know why, but I think that a lot of the time, the valuation they're giving on your car could be anything as high as 30 to 35% higher than, than you'd actually get trying to sell them. But that's for another day. There are a lot of other stories making the papers this morning, a lot of colour ones. I will come back to them in a few minutes' time, but I just want to jump, if you don't mind, onto the Cork-Dublin train because uh, Johnny John Murphy is travelling to Dublin and shared a photograph with him this morning uh, that just lifted my heart. It's a trolley. Uh, so the trolley's back. I think might be kind of limited, what they're, what's available on the trolley, but at least it's back. JJ, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm Taking good. Noise. I'm on the way to the big smoke. You're up to the big um, smoke. Uh, but go on, yeah, you sent me a shot of what looked like a kind of a mini trolley. Yeah, do you know the handy-dandy trolley on the old train with your coffee and the... Say, what did I have? No coffee and no biscuits and stuff. And... Um, Grand, I got a cup of coffee. It doesn't taste like it's okay. Um, <laughs> I've got two cotton water, like, you know what I mean? You got dates and coffee. Grand. You got, what, biscuits, uh, chocolate bars, sandwiches, what? Yeah, they have all that on it. But the coffee, it's always mad, nearly four euros. Oh, they're taking the Michael yeah. on that one. Yeah, I think so. No, not that I buy coffee, but I'd say cup coffee's two fifty or something like that around. The you might stretch so, yeah, to two ninety five or three euro. But was it four euro for a cup of coffee? It got so I think it was three seventy five, and you only take card payments. It's no cash. But were people no delighted cash. to see the trolley back again? Yeah, yeah, they are really to be fair, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Grand like was there? It was there a mad rush people buying off it? Yeah, there was a panic, all right. He was <laughs> slowing up, going down the old carriage, right? 
because <laughs> everyone had their old pals looking for another <laughs> cup of jab like that you know no soggy sandwiches no 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 just the old biscuit cup of coffee tea Barry's tea by the way good thing isn't it uh, for Cork like um, other than that yeah, it was alright it was alright they, they say that it's a limited service and they're training in staff so there's bigger things to come apparently what do you think of that maybe you might get back to the do- days of the old full f- Irish breakfast what do you think yeah being first class but that don't tell you you're not in first class no 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 we're on the bog standard one today like I just, next time my no, I'm going to first class and see do I get a fire and shall report back to <laughs> Alright, okay. Good luck to you. <laughs> thanks, thanks, JJ. Right, Enjoy the cup of Talk coffee on the Cork Dublin train. The trolley is back, albeit a limited service, but at least it's back and things can only get better. Papers are also talking a lot about different um, stories related to food and diet and what have you. And one of them is that uh, trendy fasting diets may harm long-term fertility. But another one that makes the papers today is that, and I know... I know we constantly hear these cures for hangovers, how to avoid a hangover, but they are now saying that there is an enzyme pill. What is an enzyme pill? But it's a small little pill that's full of good gut bacteria. And it's got this enzyme in it that breaks down the alcohol in the body. They tested it out on rats, apparently, and the rats didn't get a hangover. How they proved that, I have no idea in the wide earthly world. But apparently, uh, you take this pill before you go out on the bev and no more hangovers. And um, One of the things that people used to reach for uh, with regards to a hangover was sulpidine or nurofen or things like that. Um, and I know that many people who try to buy sulpidine, for instance, in pharmacies and chemists, um, they feel as if they're being interrogated by the Garda Shikona, um by the pharmacist or the staff behind the, uh, the counter as to why you want the salpidine. And, you know, they don't necessarily want to just give it out like the old days. But apparently it's going to totally stop now because medicines containing codeine like salpidine and norofen will soon be prescription only, according to the Mirror today. Um, so that's a, a change in the offing. I imagine they will make more money that way. But I just love this story with regards to Tupperware parties. For years, I used to call them Tupperware, but the actual term is Tupperware. And apparently for 80 years, Tupperware has been keeping everything you want fresh, right? So your Sunday dinner can be your Monday dinner and your Tuesday dinner and your Wednesday dinner. But they think the Tupperware is about to um, be a thing of the past. Uh, They owe huge amounts of money by all accounts. And they're saying that it's just not really cool anymore. I, I think that story is all wrong. I think it's all wrong because you can get all sorts of knockoffs of Tupperware now in your Lidl's and your Aldi's and you can get them in your, you know, your your pound shops and your cost cutters and things like that. I think people are storing food more than ever before, but they're just probably not necessarily using the, the plastic Tupperware. They're using other knockoffs that are coming in much cheaper. And the papers also, just finally for now, or at least this is McVitie's who have done some research, they want to start a national campaign now to reinstate the office tea and biscuit break. Um, And one of the reasons they want people to stop and have tea and biscuits in the workplace is because 70% uh, of the nation's workforce are not taking any breaks, right? But one of the bigger issues is that apparently an awful lot of people here and in the UK don't know all of their colleagues' names in the workplace. They just don't. And I am so guilty of that. I mean, it's all about honesty and openness on this program. And I have to hold my hand up and say... There are, let me just say, a number of people working for <laughs> Red FM whose names that I don't know. <laughs> I was wondering whether you're going to admit it or not. I, 
I will admit it. You do know our names, which is a good start. I, I do know your name, Michael. Yeah. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, thanks. But, thanks, but, Niall. But the only person <laughs> whose name that I really want to know here at FM, right, is the culprit who leaves a dirty dinner plate in the sink every night. And it greets me every morning when I go in to have a cup of coffee. Do we know who that individual is? I I really think there has to be some sort of investigation launched into this. Can we do a CSI style crime scene investigation? It's just not on. Yeah. I I, I I don't know. You have to ask one of the weekend crew if you're coming into it on a Tuesday and it's being left over there. It's not just on the weekends. I see the spaghetti bolognese and I see the chicken curry, the remnants of same. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm They're sick of it. getting their full food diary. Why do people clean up when they go into a kitchen? It's gross. And we have a dishwasher in and here. And they don't right? even know how to use a dishwasher. It's, it's like I wouldn't mind. Like. I mean, I, we, we, I, I spent the last weekend in the camper van. You, you can't, be, can't be leaving dirty plates around the camper van. Like, you have to clean that up. You have to be washing it. and Everything needs to be washed the minute it gets used because otherwise it doesn't end up stinking Get up the Get in there gap. and clean that toilet. You know I mean? yeah. do, you know, do you know everybody's names around here? Oh, controversial. Claire does. (laughs) It's I, I, yeah. I would say, I suppose, because because we're office, our office is a hybrid working office, and people work from home. There are people, huh? I love that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Um, it's I, I, I don't know. Are there people that work from home almost full time? Did I? Would not see him. Would I, not yeah, but I mean, talking to the but I think the, the, I everybody say, around the building. Uh, I would my know, friend, yeah. how you doing, my friend? Yeah. How are you, my brother? Well, how's, how's it going, my man? Do you ever walk up to someone with the, another friend, or maybe your wife or partner, and this person going against you, and you can't <gasps> remember their name all the time? Yeah. All so the so you you're you're just oh. approaching them, and you can't remember their, and you're in this panic because you don't have time to warn the person you're with. Don't remember their name, Neil. Neil, there's there's how? there's people I have seen once a week. Every week at every single Cork City game for thir- for whatever however long I've been going twenty five years and I and you know it gets beyond the point where you can ask their name Do you know you know the way like if you don't know somebody's name at the beginning it's okay to ask them but then after like four or five weeks it it's just it's yeah, you're too just late not training your brain it's just too late yeah, I'm, no, I'm I'm a brilliant one on that because like I had the the, the wife um, the wife the wife, <laughs> the wife. Her, her indoors the wife um, if, 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 <laughs> if it ever gets to a situation where there's somebody coming towards me and I don't know who they are I get her to say you're going to introduce me to her, your friend and I go but they can introduce themselves oh, <laughs> I got caught one so I believe right that everybody in the workplace should wear name badges ah oh, no oh, no yeah no like senior infants on no, it should be like Google and Amazon. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Facebook companies like that. Everybody please wear a name badge. We could um we could do a you know the way in old doctor surgeries they, they have the list of all the doctors and who's in and who's out. Maybe in this new hybrid working environment you could have a, a board on the side of the office wall that has who's everyone's names and whether, whether they're in or out of the office today. What's your man's name again? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Neil. I'm not actually, sure. Actually, thanks for that. Last week actually there was another story in the papers that said that they shouldn't have tea breaks in the workplace because it slows you down and you're less productive so it's like it's like bus research is like buses there's always another one around to contradict the last one talk to Neil Prenderville now 0818 104 106
Cork's Red FM. And you can text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106 or any of the stories that we've dealt with this morning. I'd love your thoughts on them, particularly the stories regarding the workplace uh, or remembering people's names or being caught off guard by someone that you need to introduce. How do you get around it? There must be a tip. There must be a way uh, around that. So get in touch. Text 0868104106. Uh, happy to say, delighted to say, having read quite an amount of uh, her book, I've uh, Sarah uh, Jane in studio, as in Sarah Jane um, Cromwell, originally born Thomas Cromwell. Um, uh, what, a, what an incredible backstory. Can you hear me okay, Jamaica? Right? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Um, are, are you happy now, you know, happy. In, li- in life? Yeah, I'm good. Because yeah. you certainly weren't when you were young and small. Yeah, it's a different story. And growing up. Yeah, yeah. well, turning 63 can do that to you. <laughs> But turning, turning into your 60s probably makes you hopefully more content with your lot. Oh, it does. When you look back over your life, well, and when I look back over my life, I have a great many reasons to feel proud of myself. Yeah. yeah. So I'm fulfilling my life purpose, so I'm good about that, yeah. Yeah. And have you gone a complete, have you gone through a complete gender change now? Oh, yeah, completed. All of the surgery everything, and everything. Everything was completed in 2015, including my birth certificate, everything, yeah. Wow. Amazing, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So it took a long road, that journey, didn't it? It took a long road and it took a lot longer than it would have taken had I not been active in the space around gender, raising awareness about gender identity issues and being at the forefront of affecting affecting change in Ireland around all of that and raising awareness. And uh, I was the first woman in Ireland with gender dysphoria to go public. And yeah. Now, gender dysphoria, and I don't know whether you correct me now, is, is, is like gender identity disorder where you're... Gender identity as you, mm. as Sarah, is different to your sex assigned at birth. It's a hot topic item now. It's a very hot topic item, and I recently stepped away from it because it's so toxic. Um, In what way did you step away from it? From LG, LGBTQ? Yeah, I, I just, I'm on a whole different life path now, on a whole different Why journey. did you step away? Well, I think after nearly 20 years uh, of being at the forefront of things, I think it was time to step away and, and do things differently in my life. I mean, it was all done. It was entirely voluntary as well. And I really needed to mind myself. Things like that take a huge toll on you. And um, I, I won't go into here, but okay. I paid a massive price for, for that. Not There's a lot of pushback in having opinions in, on this topic. There is, but even when you're at the forefront of it and you've had that journey yourself you're not even protected by by um, yeah. not by the general public have been absolutely amazing it's people within the space that have been the problem for me not not the, the wider society the wider society has been quite wonderful there's lots of people talking there's lots oh, of yeah. noise there and there's lots of noise lots We're of disinformation to, yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of um, I mean I have my concerns about a lot of things but um to be honest with you, it's just not a space I feel comfortable in okay. anymore. Yeah, yeah. You're happier yeah. in your own space. I'm happier in my thing. own space. And the work I'm doing now um, going forward is around the work of trauma and helping people with trauma. And help. I'm a life coach and I'm a consultant and I'm devoting the rest of my time now to work. Because I did read now. that you said that uh, many people think that they might be gender dysphoric, as mm. in... You know, head is telling you that you're, mm. in, in your case, female, body telling you that you're male but they're actually struggling with their sexuality and that's an entirely different thing he said or they've had traumas in their lives and that is it that they're confused sometimes that can happen it's not a well discussed issue but it it does happen um there's as you said earlier neil it's a it's a hot topic it's it's very 
it's um, it's complex to say the least. You know, in in the last decade or so, decade and a half, we've seen a massive rise in the numbers of people presenting with different forms of gender identity, and there's a massive debate going on around all of that as well. Um, and that's not a discussion I want to be part of. In I, fairness, you because Cork is your home now yeah, since so, yeah. uh, since I mean the back end of the nineties, but your young life. Oh, yeah. Was tragic. Yeah, I'm going to try to talk about those things. <laughs> tragic. I mean, yeah, you was. were one of 12. Yes. Born in 1960. Um, didn't get much of an education because the no. family life was tough now. Your mum and dad were tough. They were, yeah. Yeah. In, 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 talk to me a little bit about that. Well, these are the things I'm glad to talk about because these are, they, whilst these stories start off quite negative and, and quite sad in ways and traumatic, they, 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 they come to a good place, so I'm really happy to talk about those. Yeah, I mean, I'm the third of 12. Um, I started work when I was 11 years of age. I'm can you imagine that now? I always liking my life to be in something like a Charles Dickens novel, like Hard Times or Oliver Twist. But, yeah, <laughs> but even like that. before but, that, you were yeah. taken out of school. Yeah, I was. Um, taken out quite to a bit. mind the other kids. That's right. It yeah. is Dickensian. It is, yeah, to look after my younger brothers and sisters. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> but did the, did the school little, not come calling or a school inspector say, well, the, Thomas, yeah. back to school, pal? Yeah, can we stick to Sarah, please? No, at the time. <laughs> I, yeah, even at the time. Yeah. I, yeah, I own my name now completely from the beginning. That's why I wrote okay. that's why right. I, my, yeah. my old we're, name we're only all, appears We're all learning, me included. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that. No problem. No, yeah. That's why it only appears once in the book. Yeah. I know people found that a bit surreal, which was great, actually, because imagine... You live a life one way, but you have a different name. You're kind of constantly going, wow, wow, wow. Am I, am I talking about a male or a female? And, yeah. And I, that's what, what stage I of my life yeah. was that? Well, even for people reading the book and people said to me, yeah, it was a bit of a surreal experience. That, that gives you an idea of what's like to live in the head of somebody who has one name and one gender identity, but identifies in a completely different and way. And were you struggling quite young? Oh, yeah, from my earliest days, yeah. yeah. And I remember even when I was telling my family and my siblings about it, that they said, oh, yeah, we remember when you were small and, you know, you were right little attention-seeking and you were very emotional and you were like a little girl and you were a sissy and, and even the way you looked after us and all this kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. Th- 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 it was recognised even by my behaviours at the time that I had very distinct, uh, okay. different gender identity, yeah, yeah. mannerisms and ways and, of And, and um, was there love, though, in the family? Or were, the, were your were really your, good question. Were your parents Actually, just unkind parents? Can I just say, um, all our perspectives changed over time, and what I would have said about my parents in the first couple of chapters of the book, I really wanted to humanise my parents because really, what tends to happen when you've had a really bad experience with people, it's too easy to objectify all the damage that's been done and not see the people causing the damage. Um, there's no question that we had a lot of damage done to us as children. However. I believe now, and especially what I'm learning about uh, uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that a lot of my, a lot of what I experienced from my parents was my parents acting out of trauma, their own traumas. Okay, and that there are th- aspects th- of the book involving your dad, which I yeah. won't go into here, mm-hmm. and other and, and other family mm-hmm. members of yours, which were very very serious. And oh yeah, people were, yeah. can people can read about that, but yeah. that must have had an incredible impact upon you and those that were damaged. It was um, devastating, yeah. to be honest. I yeah. mean, there's no... Yeah, get a bit emotional sometimes. Aren't I? I do sometimes forget. Well, you, because you're looking at the innocence yeah. of youth and, and children yeah, and what they was, were It was through. a time of... Um, what can I say about that time? I have a couple of old photographs. I rarely ever show them um, for obvious reasons, but there's a couple of photographs of me when I'm very, very young. One is an altar server in my Sutan and Sorbalus, and another one of me about 11 or 12 where I have my 
arm wrapped around one of my brothers that are obviously black and white. <laughs> um, Tell me about it. <laughs> exactly. We all remember those old photographs yeah. of the black and white that have faded in the background. But anyway, um, I do I do look back at those photographs and I do feel that the very my essence is captured um, in those photographs and I still think I retain a lot of that innocence and that way of looking at the world, yeah. looking out with hopeful eyes. In one picture, you see me smiling. I'm very happy to have my arms around my brother. And I'm very hopeful because yeah, in, even in my darkest times growing up, um, I always tried to find hope in situations and, and try to find the best in people. Now, sometimes that got me into a lot of trouble because I trusted a lot of people over the course of my life, especially when I was young. And that back, would backfire massively on me. And uh, adults at the time had let me down really, really badly because children were supposed to be seen but yeah. not heard and yeah. things like that. So and when you reached out to people for help, um, that will often backfire. But yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm dwelling a lot on your on your childhood, but it is a very important part of all of our lives. It because is, sure. so it's, you were you were us. you were taken out of school to mine the kids at yes. nine. Teacher actually I read an article in the Irish Times that you did where the teacher actually told your mother you were retarded. Oh yeah. Remember that horrible word? Retarded. Yeah, that was a that I can honestly say and I'm glad you glad you brought that up because actually uh, people over and understandably over the last 20 years or so have focused in on this remarkable journey around my gender identity but actually for me personally my childhood traumas and being raised as retarded uh, sorry that gets a bit emotional but I'm okay talking about it but that was by far my biggest challenge in life my traumas there were traumas around my gender identity but they were not they were not anywhere near as great as the trauma of being told I was mentally retarded the bullying the rejection, all of the things that went with that. Um, and that, that absolutely did shape the kind of person I became mm. in the course of my life. Mm. So at the age of 12 then, uh, you got some amount of freedom mm. only as a 12-year-old going to work though. Yeah. And again, rather Dickensian, petrol station, working in a butcher shop, working That's in true. a weaving factory, a yeah. clothing factory. Tough work for a 12-year-old, all of it. Oh, it was just... It's, it's, when you look back at it, you think... That could only happen in a novel. <laughs> but actually, that was my life. Yeah, that was well, my it's, life. It's, it's in the book, but it's not a novel. It's your book yeah, and exactly. it's fact. But what, uh, but, and so you were moving into adolescence then were you, and through puberty. Talk about those struggles, though, and attractions of the opposite or the same sex and things like that. What was happening? That was like a... It's how do you even describe it as a, at that age? I, all I can tell you was a, it was quite horrific at times. Seeing my body, my full expectation was that I thought I was going to be a late developer. I literally thought this, I was going to be a late developer and that my, sooner or later my body would match my, my identity as a girl. And of course that never happened. And so I... Did I, you really believe that? Oh, of course, yeah, absolutely. Wasn't that very naive it was, and innocent? Well, I don't imagine you call it naive, but I certainly, because I was operating on... See, what people need to understand about people like myself growing up, we, we outside of the world telling us that we're different how we see ourselves and how we are instinctively within ourselves is completely at odds. It's hard to even... And this is why I think a lot of people do struggle with understanding the idea of... That's quite deep now, yeah. That is. That, that yeah. even with male or female appendage, you still believe... Oh, totally, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I know what I am. And you, Yes, I'm 100%. Um, I'd never any single doubt in my mind about it whatsoever. Um, that was a massive struggle in my, my adolescence. Another big struggle I had in my adolescence was my education and the lack of it. Having left school so young, working in factories, um, not being able to properly read or write, but having to fill in forms and 
write weights on boxes and things like that. And I didn't understand any of those words. Um, and I was going to get myself into a lot of trouble if I lost one particular job, which was the weaving factory, because my father used to work there before me and he knew a lot of those people. And of course, he would have felt mortified. Uh, you were terrified. You were terrified. I was totally, uh, yeah. totally terrified. So what I did was I... Um, I bought myself a dictionary. I'm really proud of this story, actually, because this is, was the beginnings of my educa- my self-education and my lifelong learning. I bought a little pocket dictionary to teach myself the words. There were, bo- there were names on the boxes like gross weights, tear weights, net weights, and I hadn't got a clue what they were, and I was too embarrassed to ask people. And so I went out, when I got my wages, I went out and I bought uh, my first pocket dictionary. And I went and I learned those words, and I learned any time I'd carry around in my back pocket everywhere I went, and any time I saw words I didn't understand, I would go to my dictionary and I would learn them. And then I would. There's commitment for you. Yeah, and then I'd learn how to. And when I saw how how empowering that was for me, um, I decided to. I felt really, really terribly self-conscious about the fact that I, all my peers had been in school, had gone to second level, my siblings had gone to second level, and I hadn't. And so I decided to educate myself. So what I would do was, I'd, uh, when I get my wages at the weekend, I would mainly use it for buying books, second-hand books, and also for treating my brothers and sisters. I would take them out to different places, take them to cultural places like the museums and Kilmainham Jail and all that kind of ah, stuff. Ah, that's lovely. And so I would take them out at the weekends. And to, But the other thing then, I would buy these books. And what was really interesting was, I didn't know what, what textbooks they were using in school. So I was going into bookshops where I was picking up third level books. <laughs> I still can't believe I did this. And there were books on psychology and sociology and religion and all these different things. And I was learning them. And my little my little pocket dictionary was upgraded then to a full-size Oxford dictionary. And then I was learning. Oh, that's how I learned so much about the beautiful world. Self-educated words. in the truest sense of the word. Oh, yeah. Totally but you yeah. did you did marry. I did, yes. Yeah, that that just did not work out. Oh, uh, that was yeah, that was not a good experience. I have yeah. to say that was an old in two thousand. I know, but I'm I'm just wondering because you know you you married a woman at the time yeah, and, course, and, yes. and thought. Do you think you were in love, or was it something you thought? Actually, I, I better do I better I better do this because it's the expected thing. Well, first of all, you always think you're in love. I am. I am. <laughs> You're learning a lot about me today. I am quite romantic. I'm, I'm very emotional. I'm a very emotional person. I'm very affectionate. But that can't be any surprise given what's happened to me. Um, and yeah, I did believe at the time that I was in love. And for a great many years afterwards, I tried to maintain the marriage. But I was, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was a good experience. And in fairness, the other person had made it. Um, I do believe the other person made it during my mistake. But at the, in those days, especially as I was a practicing Christian at the time, it, these were hellish situations that once you got yourself into them it was nearly impossible to get out of them you couldn't you uh, just you didn't could, feel you could walk something. away well it was a different it was a different Ireland wasn't it oh totally different Ireland and even if you're in an, in a, an abusive relationship well it was loveless then, and abusive you wrote it was both of those things and um, yeah there were other people who saw that and kept questioning me about why I was sticking around but what they didn't understand was I took my Christianity I took my faith very seriously at the time and I was also aware that, and I had seen it happening around me that no matter, and I knew people who had walked away from marriages and they were right to do so because they were so abusive. And that even if you do that, you're the baddie, you're the one that gets judged by society, you're the one that gets condemned and ostracized by your community because you're the one that walked away. No context whatsoever to why you did that. Um, and people didn't, we didn't have those conversations back then. You just left and that's all that, that was the sum total of how people estimated your your behaviour at that time and but at the same time I was I was hopeless uh, hopelessly hopeful if you like 
That's a good way of putting it, I suppose. I was hopelessly hopeful. I, I just still believe that if if things could work out, if the other person could find a way forward, then we could work forward together. But it just didn't happen. Yeah. And it was, ultimately, it was my health that that, could, that intervened. Okay. Okay. And it, 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 was that was that the chapter then after the breakup? You decided, okay, I need now to really uh, assign my head with my body yeah, and there, fix this. Yeah, that was a good few years later, actually. I left Dublin in 1995 on the, on the advice of uh, my consultant at the time who saw how bad my health was at the time and told me very starkly, if you don't leave Dublin, you will die because he saw the level of depression and other things that were happening to me at the time, the effects that the family situation were having, that my marriage was having on me. And at the time, I never really discussed my gender identity issue because I was ascribing it to other things. And and, and also, to be honest, that had to go back into the background because it was just so difficult trying to face and cope with everything that was in front of me that to take that on was just way, way, way too much. But it was always there but it was just way, way, way too much on top of all the stuff that was happening to me at that time. So that, that was leading to an awful lot of torment then and, oh, huge. and psychological struggle mm-hmm. that, that you talk about a lot yes. and also suicide ideation and oh, suicide yeah, attempts. So, yeah. 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 Was it at that stage that your doctor said, you got to get out of Dublin, is it? Or, or, it was, yeah. I knew myself. I had a, a, a terrible moment. I, was, I used to work for a financial services company in Dublin uh, over on the, 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 the canal and I, it was a bit of a drive from there to home each day in Ballyfermot and I remember one day in particular it was in April funny around the time of the year and I was driving home and I had the most massive I thought I was actually having um, a brain hemorrhage it was so bad the pain was just like no pain I'd ever experienced before and I had to stop the car in the middle of the road down near Clambrazel Cl- Street and I had to get out of the car and it took me quite a while before I could get back in and drive home and I remember driving home and I knew I was in serious, serious trouble at that stage. And I had said it to my spouse at the time and I, I don't know if I'll give the, tell the reply, but it was pretty awful. And I knew I was in serious trouble. And it was around that time then I was invited to go to visit Newcastle West for a weekend break and I did. And then I was invited down for a, a week's holidays and I went down for the week's holidays and while I was on the holiday, um, that's when I had my massive breakdown. And that's when my friend took me to see a consultant psychiatrist in Barrington's Hospital. It was just a horrific period. When did the penny drop then? When when the doctor told me... When did the penny drop with regards to your gender identity? Oh, that was several years later. I I arrived. That was only when I actually came into Cork. I I moved into Cork in 1998. And even then it took two or three years because, again, I was in survival mode all the time. This is what people need to understand. There were so many things happening in the present moment that my gender identity was always taken to back seat. And so... In 2002, after one of my last uh, suicide attempts, um, I'd, I remember sitting on the bed waiting for my my then partner to come and collect me. And um, I was sitting on the bed and I, I was t- literally thinking this to myself, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very competent at trying to end my life. I need to do something different. And so I decided, I'd already been looking up the gender identity stuff at that stage. I knew because then I was, there was a bit of respite from all the other stuff that was happening. And I started thinking about it more and I said, okay. And I started, we had Yahoo, those of us are old enough now to know, long before the days of Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, we had, we were uh, at the, we had Yahoo groups and we thought we were great with our Yahoo groups at the time. But I'm thankful for it because I got to meet people and have conversations around gender identity that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I started learning about language like transgender, gender identity, gender identity disorder, all these different things. And then 
I, a name was given to me about for somebody who I'm forever grateful for, um, Diane Hughes, and I eventually met Diane, and um, Diane had given me the name of a clinical psychologist in Dublin. Okay. Um, but even then, I still hadn't done anything about it, and I decided then, and I remember sitting in the hospital bed thinking, you know, this is just not worth it. This is my life. I have to do something with my life. I had seen what other people had done. I'd seen what, how they had been treated by society. And it really wasn't good at all. Um, but you, but you, you, at, at some stage you must have said, I will need to go so far that it must also include surgery. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Okay. well I'll tell you how that happened. I, I went after to the see- break. I want to pick oh, up yeah. on that aspect after the break. Yeah, so hold yeah. on there. In conversation with Sarah Jane Cromwell. Back after the break. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. In studio, Sarah Jane Cromwell. We just mentioned there before the break that at some stage then you decided, okay, this journey has to change and we have to, um, I have mm-hmm. to, you know, get myself sorted into the body that I wish to be and the person that I want to be. Would that have started then with, I did read somewhere, I think it was an Irish Times article, where you were talking about having to go for um, laser hair removal, hormone therapy, um, dropped a huge amount of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you did a lot of that by salsa dancing and uh, exercise. <laughs> yeah, like, Cha- you, the group, yeah. you changed your diet. <laughs> What changes would the hormones make? Oh, God. Well, I was already emotional, so I probably didn't notice any difference there. <laughs> Except that they were probably a bit more valid. They were, people were okay with them then. Because people do are comfortable or uncomfortable with you emotionally, depending on what your gender is. Believe me or not, that's a very real thing and a very real distinction. distinction. It shouldn't be, but it is. But uh, I think being under hormones really brought a lot of validation um, because this was being done clinically, it was being done objectively, it was being done by um, people who were very conservative in the medical profession as you would want them to yeah, be. Yeah. Um, and I found all that reassuring. I got my diagnosis in 2003, actually, and it was took until 2004, July, I think, of 2004, when I finally went onto my hormones. And um, I want to give a public acknowledgement to the team at St. Colm Kills Hospital, Lachlanstown, um, and to Professor Donald O'Shea in particular. He was my endocrinologist at the time. And what he was doing back then, and what he was, how he was helping all of us at the time, and I have to say as well, he hasn't always been as appreciated by people as he definitely okay. should be. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he... he, um, he uh, was looking after me and his team were looking after me and they looked after me really, really well. And so that's when I, 2004 is when I started my hormone treatment. And that then changes you emotionally oh, it does, as, yeah. and, and physically. Oh yeah, well it gave me a lot of calmness actually. I felt very calm in myself. I felt a peace within myself and a comfort within myself I never felt before in my whole life. Um, was it at that stage then that you started presenting as... Yeah, in the sense of dressing as well. Yeah, 2004, what I did was I went and I spoke to my neighbours. I spoke to my family, I spoke to my neighbours as they would have seen me at the time before I they met me as Sarah Jane. And then I started introducing them to Sarah Jane. And it was, I have to say, it was a wonderful, one, as frightening as one would expect it to be. And I, they had its downsides at times. But I do have to say overall, and I really do need to say this, um, because it's the truth and it's not something you hear too often but I have to say that the overwhelming majority of people that I met along the way in the early stages of this journey were absolutely wonderful Mm. some wonderfully poignant moments some terribly funny moments um, joyful moments uh, inspiring moments Did you lose any friends? Very little actually Uh, in fact again another reason why I'm really proud to talk about these things is all the friends that I have in my life now are the friends that I 
that came into my life from the beginning of that journey and have remained steadfast to this day and and also I've acquired a lot of other wonderful wonderful friends since then but was the surgery because you 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 wished to do that and and had planned it and did it yeah but was that a big was that a, a big decision to make that is a massive, massive decision, um, and it, it's an irreversible decision. That once you once you go through with this surgery, there is no. That's, we're talking about gen, genital realignment surgery. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you you can't change your mind after that. No, you can't. Once you've done it, you've done it. And I would say to people, and that it is still my message today, especially with a lot of the confusion that's out there at the moment, that people have an idea, an idea like picture of how life is going to look afterwards you have to be so careful I think whether it's the hormones it's like any surgery people forget that all forms of surgery are, are forms of trauma and that they have impacts on your body and some of those impacts can last you for a very long time afterwards and so I would always advise caution on this um, but having for me personally I've never had any regrets about it I feel I feel as I felt today that I woke up after my surgery and it's however, corrective surgery corrective, isn't it that's, that's what it, it is isn't that's it? what it should be called because yeah. in, that's exactly what it is um, and for me it corrected so many things it, it, there's an instant in time that can change your whole life and for me the instant in time was when I woke up and I just felt so complete it's hard to describe to people and I don't mind getting emotional about it it is such a an incredible sense of completeness that you feel. Unfortunately, you take something this drastic and dramatic to to get to that place. Um, but I have I've only got gratitude in my heart for I'm gratitude. I've, I'm grateful to myself for having the courage to do it. But I'm immensely grateful for all of the people around me, all the, the professional medical professionals, what, and my know, friends, and everybody. But, but what yeah, about but you? You see the world we live in now, and I know yeah. you don't want to finish on a negative point, and mm-hmm. I don't mean to. But mm-hmm. you know, even awful lot of people now who are you know worried that children are being yeah. exposed to gender identity at a very young age, and they may be making decisions. It could be Tavistock House. It could be things mm-hmm. like that that they may go on to regret later. I know we can't divide this subject and I had thought long and hard about doing interviews because I know it is a, a go-to place and I absolutely understand Very hot that. topic at yeah, the moment. It's very hot and it's very understandable and I have my own concerns about it. As I said, I, I've been working in the space for nearly just over 20 years now and I, I do see, I have seen the way things have evolved over time. I see the things that cause me to be concerned working with people privately, always privately, um, and and the things you get to hear in private, as opposed to what you get to hear in the, in the, in public or in a group situation, can be quite contradictory sometimes and quite paradoxical. Um, but for me personally, um, it is not an easy subject because my heart, obviously I would want to be very protective of those children who have a gender dysphoria and are in huge distress and who, like me, are going to go through the horror of developing physically in a way that is so incongruent with with their identity and there is no easy answer to this at all um, all I can say but, but I'm also equally aware that there are children who will go through that at an early stage but then will just revert to their biological gender and our sex and they will go on and live very happy lives I think it takes it's, I, I'll be honest with you and tell you without wanting to be evasive I think it takes the wisdom of Solomon sometimes yeah. to deal with this yeah. I, I fluid then has got to be a good thing fluid has got to be a good thing because it allows people yeah. to choose at any particular period in their life as yeah. to what they want to be is I think that what if it is? People, I think if people educate themselves if you deal with the facts 
and work off the facts and trying to separate yourself from all the emotional hyperbole that goes around with this. If you can learn to separate those two things out and deal with the facts, one of the reasons, in fact, why I went public was to do that very thing. I wanted people to be aware of the facts around all of this. Um, I dealt with my emotions privately, but deal with the facts. I wanted to educate people about the fact that gender identity and gender dysphoria are, is a very, very real thing. Okay. Um, and it is. And if it's, if it's managed in the right way, if, it, if people have the right understanding, if they have the compassion, if they have the love, I mean, my message to every parent, to every sibling, to every friend, to every teacher, to anybody out there who has an interest in these things, to please understand that these children are not doing this on a whim. Um, there are things happening within children as they develop over time. Just like they did within you. Yeah. And just, there, there is an aspect of taking it at face value, but there's also giving people, the, these children, the time and the space. And for me, most importantly, the love and the support the unconditional love and the support that they need to work this through and to let them work it through at their pace, mm-hmm. not to push them forward or to hold them back, but to let them grow and develop in their own way at their own pace. I think the outcomes okay. uh, from that will be far more positive. Okay, yeah. and, and the outcome for you, certainly a positive one from what I've garnered from you this morning oh, and yes. indeed with the book, No Ordinary Life. Yeah. But And I don't mean to pry, but did you, did you find love, find relationships, find happiness? I thought I did, but that's another story for another day. Still not too late, though, I, do you think? Or do you care? I'm still breathing. <laughs> uh, so as long as you're breathing, you're just hoping. It's the main thing, still above ground. But can I just say, whatever my present circumstances are, um, when I go right, when I go to my centre, when I go to my core, um, in the book I talk about to the known self be true, I try to live by that. I try to be congruent with that, with that principle. Um, I, I'm very happy in myself. I've never felt as comfortable in myself as a human being, as a woman, as, as a human being, um, as a life changer, hopefully, um, as I do in this moment in time. Good. And again, it's not just simply about the gender journey. It's also about overcoming all these many other obstacles and working and on And you had a lot of them, even from I, the youngest of age. And yeah. I'm so delighted you called in this morning. No thank problem. you for the book. Thank you for having me. I haven't finished it, but yeah. I'm going to get back to it this afternoon. Great. Let the rain and the wind continue and Good. I will finish thank uh, you so much. Sarah Jane Cromwell's No Ordinary Life. Great to see you. Thanks for thank chatting you. this morning. You're very welcome. Thank Take you. care. Your thoughts are welcome. Text 0868104106. Thank you, Sarah. Back after 10. Hey, it's Dave. Join me weekdays from 4 for Dave Max Drive, where I'll help get you home or give you a little lift at home. Big hits loads of fun features and traffic info what more could you need join me weekdays from 4 Dave Max Drive The Neil Prenderville Show Red FM a lot of texts this morning one to do with busking I was talking about that earlier in the week maybe start housing our families that have been made homeless due to your corrupt pals and all Aaron along with the misfortunate souls that line doorways at night rather than thinking about bringing in rules to change busking. Um, this is a, an initiative that started in, in Killarney, uh, putting manners and times on buskers, and it's probably going to happen here as well. So more on that. On the injection centre, they're travelling to Portugal uh, from City Council uh, to go and see how they do it in the likes of Lisbon. There is no if about when we get an injection centre. It is a done deal and Grattan Street or its surrounding area will be the address, unfortunately. And a quick one then on the increase in cost or the increase in prices of second-hand cars, which have gone through the roof. I was telling you that early. Regarding second-hand car valuation, Neil, I have an eight-seater Ford Tourneo Custom. 
hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's a big eight-seater Ford. I was going to change it. It's two years old, top spec, automatic. It has gone up by 20 grand. That's incredible. Um, Absolutely crazy prices. I think I will keep it for sure. It's gone up by 20 grand, though. Isn't that one of the reasons you should sell it? Uh, When you talk about cars and traffic and what have you, you need to remind people that there is an issue in the city with loading bays and people parking and abusing them. Uh, Then the legitimate people can't get to park there because of loading bay abuse in the city. And then with regards to my conversation this morning uh, before 10, I am accused of having an agenda. It appears you have a great agenda going on here. It seems as if you are pushing this this gender issue more than anyone else on the airwaves. I don't think so, uh, but I'm very, very keen and happy to hear people's personal life stories. Um, Anyway, the texter says, if I was going on a date... Am I, as a straight man, entitled to know that the person I'm about to get into in a relationship with or even kiss on a one-night stand was born the same sex as myself? My reason for asking this is because, in my opinion, if I'm not entitled, then that is sexual abuse on the person who gets me involved in a same-sex relationship. There is no difference between gender and sex. Uh, A male is a a man, a female is a woman. End of. You can't tell yourself you're something else and off with you but please don't you can tell yourself uh, um, I think but please don't expect me to go along with your delusional ideas well I don't have any particular delusional ideas as again I'm here to hear people's life stories uh, I don't have um, I'm not pushing this more than anybody else on the air and I'm certainly not involved in any great agenda Um But there's another one. Yesterday's programme was fantastic, highlighting the lack of support and awareness for carers and people with disabilities. There are so many people screaming and drowning as a result of the fighting we have to do constantly for our children and adults with disabilities. The lack of support from the government is sickening. I have a teenage daughter with a disability. She goes to a special needs school and we have zero therapies or support from the Irish government. We get no physiotherapy, no occupational therapy or speech therapy over the past 12 plus years. It's a very lonely place constantly filling in forms which somehow always get lost by many different government departments. I have just turned to another radio station as I can't listen to the crap you have on this morning. A complete insult to everyone from yesterday's show. Can't go on air as I'm too busy working to provide my family especially my child with special needs. The Irish government and people need to listen to and support people who have serious, real problems and not the made-up bullshit problems that you talk about on the air this morning. Well, you're entitled to your opinion. That's all I can say about that, uh, even though that opinion might be hurtful uh, to others. Yesterday, though, we did cover a lot of ground, and I thank you for acknowledging the amount of airtime that we gave yesterday to carers and people with disabilities and the situations they find themselves in. That door isn't closed, incidentally, if other people have stories to share. Um, thank you for your text. You don't wish to come on air. You're working. Uh, not even listening anymore, so I guess it doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, Come on, this is supposed to be balanced. You're just promoting something that is so dangerous. Gender realignment is not only wrong, but very, very dangerous. So that's a selection of texts from uh, the last hour. Text 0868104106. We got calls on the way. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818104106. Cork's Red FM. Text 0868104106. Back to the phone lines we go. Carmel, good morning. Good morning, Neil. I saw your Twitter thread uh, over the weekend regarding your brother, William. Um, yeah. 
Um, it was very, very open and honest of you to share the story of your mam, who was, I think, 18 when, when William was born. Isn't that right? Yeah, she was 17 when she originally went into Bespa and 18 when he was born. Was she was she living in Ireland, living in Cork at the time? Where was Because it, it's not clear to me. No, she uh, she was brought up in Tipperary. Um, she was actually born out of wedlock herself and she was brought up by her grandmother. Um, she left home when she was 13. She actually went to work for a convent um, in Tipperary. Um, and they refused, uh, she was to become a nun herself, but yeah. she couldn't because um, uh, the father unknown was written on her birth certificate. And they refused so, then because it said father unknown and her birth cert? Yeah, well, they, they say it, it might be allowed if she went away and to be churched for a year or something to some kind of retreat, but her sister advised her just to leave. Um, to be churched work. for a year, didn't we live in very hurtful times, like as if it was anything to do with her? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's from her own experience growing up um, of being so-called illegitimate in Ireland that really uh, made her decision to flee to England when she did discover she was pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when she was in London, her fatal mistake was going to confession and uh, the, the priest then set up with the crusade of rescue to return her back to Ireland. So that's why she went back from the UK to Besborough, yeah. right? Yeah, which is very common, very it common. Was, oh, very yeah. common. I spoke to an awful lot of women in the past and that's exactly what happened. Um, and William was born in Besborough, but but died, Was was he? did he die soon after birth? Were there complications or what? No, uh, the thing was, it, my mum had a very hard uh, three-day labour and somewhere along that labour, the nuns actually gave her an injection and um, where that injection was given formed a huge abscess. But William was born absolutely healthy, a beautiful seven-pound, 11-ounce baby boy and on the third day, he became a little bit poorly, stopped feeding. Um, my mum started to become sick she overheard the nuns were squabbling with each other. One was accusing the other of giving my mum of not sterilising the needle um, uh, because the infection, you know, blew up right, right where at the point where the needle was given, um, and she had abscesses, uh, you know, on her breast. And uh, we believe that the infection was probably passed on to the baby by an unsterilised needle. Yes, in those days they weren't disposable. You had to sterilise them, yeah. and then. When the baby got sick, she overheard the nuns were fighting with each other, you know, accusing one, accusing the other of not sterilising their needle. Um, and then William would have been taken away from her. He was isolated. I mean, the girls nicknamed, it was probably a sick room, but they nicknamed it a dying room. Um, and um, she was taken to him uh, maybe a couple of times a day to feed him. She said it was just pathetic. She was watching this little baby die in front of her eyes. He was getting weaker and weaker, and she pleaded with the nuns to please get him some help to, to you know, have some medical intervention and she was just ignored um, <clears throat> until eventually I think he was three weeks old and he was taken to St. Finbar's Hospital then. Um, she wasn't allowed to go with him um, and he died, well she didn't know at the time when he died, it took her over 30 years to go back to Bezborough and find out but he actually survived another three weeks so he died at, at six weeks of age so you know he was a little fighter and we really believe if he was given an antibiotic sooner 
that there was medical, you know, early medical invention that he would have survived. Mm, mm. And saved we talking, my mother a lot of illnesses uh, because she became very ill herself. Mm, are we talking about the early 70s here? No, 1960. In, actually, 1960? Yeah. Okay, because what, what, what would your man be now? Early 80s, I suppose? She's 81 this year. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. So, yeah. so when William was taken away... Um, she wasn't told that. She was told nothing. It was like as if it was a closed chapter. She knew, she knew that he'd gone to hospital um, and she wanted to go with him, but she wasn't allowed. Um, you know, uh, she didn't know anything. They didn't tell her anything until the day um, a nun came to her and just said, very matter-of-factly, your baby has died and he's already buried. And we found out both those things were lies years later. And, and she's a young girl herself. She then is discharged from Besborough and and does what? Well, they they uh, they sent her back to where she came from, which was in London, uh, with the Crusade Rescue. They put her into, um, you know, digs for a couple of nights, I think. And then she very quickly got uh, work herself. But she was extremely sick. I mean, at the place where this access was, which she said was like the size of a grapefruit, that had to be packed out and since she didn't go to a doctor she was doing this all herself she said that never that open wound never healed for about a year and then after that she just couldn't come to terms with the way she was treated in Bersborough and the death of her baby yes. and she attempted suicide uh, three times in all and I think she's, she had a spell in a psychiatric hospital in Surrey for about six months um, and she says they saved her life but even in the psychiatric hospital she couldn't tell them why she was so traumatised um, and she clearly, obviously, lived with that for many years in private. Didn't didn't share it with anybody that came into her life. Um, those that she met, soul. not a not soul, a soul. until not she was her, in. Not her mother, not her own. The, you know, her grandmother who brought her up. She couldn't do that to. She said, "I couldn't do that to my lovely mum who already brought me up." But she did. She, she did confide in you, though, didn't she? At some stage. But only because I was brought up in London and it just coincidentally, I ended up marrying uh, a Cork man. And when we had, we had two young children, we, we moved to Cork. And coincidentally, I'm only a 10 minute drive from uh, Besborough. My life evolves around Besborough. The kids went to school nearby and everything. So she came over to visit us um, just soon after we had moved here. And um, she disappeared for the day. And when she came back, she was just distraught she'd been down to Besborough um she'd got the courage to knock on the door and um it, it just took her it took her a long while to actually be, to be able to verbalize to me what had happened to right. her what was the what was the reception like when she knocked on the door oh well the, the two nuns there brought her in um because she ha- had already phoned ahead a couple of months before so they were expecting her um and they had made an inquiry to St. Finbar's on her behalf via the chaplaincy, and they had got a letter back. But we now know that they chose not to give that letter to my mother. Um, instead, they took her down to the graveyard in Besborough, and um, uh, one of the nuns just patted a piece of ground in the graveyard and said, your baby's buried here. So would you, uh, you're off a with Besborough and the layout of yeah. the land. When you say pat of the ground, was it in the nuns' graveyard area yes. behind the railings? Yes, yeah. yes. But that so wasn't... Been going, I've been going there for 30 years now. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you thought your brother was there, William. 
Well, we did until you start speaking to other people and then, you know, I had no idea of how many other children had died at the time. There so, wouldn't be room enough for them. Well, exactly. Once I realised the numbers, um, but, you know, in my mum's mind, she had a kind of a, a sense of peace that she knew where her baby was. She'd actually asked them if she could put a plaque there, but they refused. They said, no, you can't put a plaque there. But when the Tune Baby story, uh, the Tune Home story broke, we actually just put a plaque down there anyway. But uh, then the big breakthrough came in when the Commission's fifth interim report came out. And um, I was notified by, um, actually it was Kaylin Hogan who, who wrote the book, The Republic of Shame. Um, she texted me to say that I think your mother's story is on page 36. I, don't, I was only just starting reading the report, never got to that far. And I just couldn't believe that this is how we found out where William was buried. Yeah. Um, it's hard to put a number on it, but it's certainly above 900 babies uh, died. Uh, and well, there's, there's the 923 are registered. Yeah. yeah, of which hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds are unknown as to their place of rest. Yeah, there, there's only um, uh, records for 64. Mm. But even that, you know, if you count, William is meant to be one of the 64. Um, is is you know the letter says that he was buried in Cars Hill and also that he remained in the hospital for 11 days before he was buried um, you were one of the lucky ones to even find out that information it, yeah I mean that was the information that was really meant for my letter that the letter was dated you know in, in December 1964 when my mum went down to Besborough but the nuns for whatever reason, maybe they thought it was a kindness not to tell her that the baby was buried in Carthill, I don't know. But it, it has taken us all these years and, and she's never stopped fighting uh, for inspect. Even now we would like more information because the records for William in Bessborough are missing. There's records for other babies but there's nothing for William and they, they would have documented his illness. They would have documented how much he was feeding and how much he weighed. Yeah. I've seen those records of babies who were there at the exact same time. She tormented so, by it all? Absolutely tormented and you know we're tormented by the fact that um, you know that there could be uh, prospects of developments happening on the grounds of Bearsborough where there could be hundreds of children buried. And we're, we're, you know, I'm involved with a campaign with a young man called Daniel Loftus who also has a connection to Bessborough uh, to, to save Bessborough, to stop any huge mm. developments happening. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've also set up an email campaign um, called The Legacy of Bessborough, you know, because we, we, we don't think there was enough done when the Commission investigated Bessborough um, uh, to... You know, to see whether. Oh, listen! I've read the report. It's it's a whitewash. It's very, very yeah. weak. It really and truly is. It's it's appallingly weak. It's far from justice. Did you? Did your mother visit? Does she visit? Is she? Does she visit Cars Hill Cemetery? Or is she is she in the UK? Or, or yeah. where is I mean, she? Actually, uh, she lives in the UK. She lives in London. Actually, on my Twitter account, the the back picture is my mother going up to Cars Hill for the first time. Um, you know, a describer as being a very lonely figure looking on this five-acre plot looking for any signs for grave. There is none. And that's, there is none. There's, you know, meant to be 30,000 court people buried there and there, there is not one Isn't it in a shocking state? It is. It gets kind of a little bit tied up once a year. There is um, a, a, you know, a famine um, commemoration there once a year and the grass at the front will get mowed a little bit, but it is really overrun with... Um, 
rapid and bam- brambles. It's um, dreadful. It really is. So, but we know yeah. of the we know of the famine aspect of it, or, or the genocide that we call yeah. famine. But the other aspect of it is there there could be many little babies from mother and baby homes buried there as well. Um, yeah. Well, there, there is no um, documentary evidence to say that, but the, I think the commission said that it is more than likely that babies that died in, in St. Zimbabwe especially would have been buried up there. But there is, there is no records at all to, to confirm this, and this is really distressing. But would they have had a service and a ceremony in a Christian burial? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, you know, there, there's much speculation. Why was William in the morgue for 11 days? Were they waiting for someone else to die to put him into the coffin and to bury them together? Because that seemed to be a practice um, as well. There um, is, of course, the know, other I, aspect, Will, which is the, you talk about the in, in your Twitter, you were saying the incompetence and neglect um, that led to his death, that life could have been saved. Yes. But and an 18-year-old the, girl at the time, of course, can't shout very loud. No, and she did. She did her best, but she was absolutely demonised by the the sister there that that just wasn't going to take any advice from a young girl. Mm. She was going to do it her way. And uh, you know, we know that there were vaccination trials going on there at the there same were. time. Yeah. And I've seen records where you know there was updates to people who had. Um, uh, a vaccination, a three-in-one, and a doctor was there making notes on the day that William was born. You know, so it seems if you were private, you got your medical care, and if you came from the Madeline Laundries or the industrial schools, yeah. the nuns would look after you. But if you were a poor country girl that was born out of wedlock herself, you, you got nothing. You she got had nothing. no antenatal yeah. care yeah. at all. You were worked hard as well on top of everything else. If yes, you were there for a period absolutely, of time. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But with and then, the, like at her young age, then they would have put her on night duty as well, so that she she would be waiting there if a girl went into labour. I mean, a, you know, a young girl that's never had any midwifery experience. Oh, it's a very frightening place. Yeah, very scary yeah. place. But as a, as an eighty year old woman now, your mum, yeah. what would she like to see done now? Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we can get an inquest into his death her, this would be her redress she's not interested in money um, she's interested in getting justice for William you know she really believes that he was neglected she knows he was she, she was the witness and um, she wants that acknowledged um, and that, that this is our only route now left because the commission didn't cut it so um, and her pleas to the government and everything have fallen on deaf ears. They're mm. just not listening. Mm. Not you have listening. a big hill to climb there, a big mountain to climb, I would think. Absolutely, absolutely. But we will, we will go. If anything else, history will show by the paper trail of the fight that we have led to get justice for William. Uh, it will, it will, history will prove that we were right in doing this and mm. pursuing it. Mm. Okay. Do stay in touch, but thank you for sharing the story of your brother William and your mum and your good self. Um, like so many other stories, each and every one of them tragic to those involved. Thank you so much, Carmel. Appreciate you taking oh, the call. You, Neil. Take thank care. You. Bye Bye-bye. for now. Text 0868104106. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818104106. Red FM. On yesterday's very powerful stories regarding carers, I'm a full time carer for my daughter who's in her late 20s. She also has cerebral palsy. She's in an electric wheelchair and requires 24 7 physical care in all aspects of her life. I receive €58 carer's allowance as it's means tested.
that's worth repeating, 58 euro. When you think of the money that you are saving the state because of your act of love looking after your daughter, 58 euro carer's allowance because it's means-tested. I strongly feel that carer's means test should be abolished and be replaced with one that is based on the level of care needed. 24-7 is what your daughter needs. Anyway, back to the email. I also strong, strongly feel that we should receive a contributory stamp as carers, even if it was one stamp for every two weeks' work, as we're not entitled to a contributory pension with carers, even though we may have cared for our loved ones for literally decades. And that's from Vanessa. That is brilliantly said. I mean, that is absolutely your right. It should be that way, and it is absolutely criminal and inhumane that it is not. 58 euros a week, and it counts to nothing with regards to a pension, even though it is your whole life's work. So keep those coming. You can email neil at redfm.ie. There isn't a week goes by that I don't receive texts, a number of texts, wondering what is the state of play with John, who was living in his whole life and worked and lived and slept in a slaughterhouse that is now closed and gone. I hope to get an update on that uh, from Paddy O'Brien. I am told that um, there's a background check going on, but I understand that. But how long does a background check take? A councillor working on it, but it's slow going. So maybe Paddy might have an update uh, at some stage this morning and we can find out where we're at with that. Anyway, text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. And I mentioned earlier on this morning about the different costs of things. I got a great email in with a text in with a fabulous photograph from Fungarola. Um, when you look at the prices of people uh, holidaying here in Ireland and indeed the value you can get overseas, flights, accommodation and damn good locations, you wonder why anybody uh, would holiday in Ireland these days with the amount of money we're being charged. But you're chatting about the weather there, Mr. P. I'm alive and kicking in the sun here in Fingarola. It's bliss, heaven on earth. It has changed over the years and is now a fantastic quality holiday. Though it was a more lively place before, the place is packed with Irish families. I can tell you one thing, there is no recession here. Here's the photograph where I'm staying. And the photograph shows... The most gorgeous balcony, uh, looking down onto the most gorgeous pool and off in the distance behind the palm trees, the sea. And it's costing 60 euro a night and it looks absolutely divine. And you are right, it being Easter, an awful lot of people are overseas. I know a lot of people who have travelled. Some have gone to West Cork and South Kerry and got the rain. Others have gone to the Canaries and got, well, not rain. But... For those of you that are overseas or indeed planning on going overseas, here's a little warning for you. Uh, saw an article on RSVP Live over the weekend and it was an interesting article because it was telling you where you're more likely to be pickpocketed and robbed. All right. So if you're planning on visiting uh, different countries, apparently there is a European pickpocketing index available now which reveals the riskiest spots to visit this year when it comes to pickpocketing. You might have thought that it would have been Barcelona in and around La Ramblas because that is a high risk for tourists and for pickpocketing. I know people whose phones have been lifted there, their wallets have been lifted there. It is bad, but apparently it's not the worst. So the worst country for pickpocketing is Italy followed by France, followed by the Netherlands, then Greece, Germany, Spain is sixth, incidentally. You would think it would have been first. Then Portugal, Turkey, Ireland makes the top ten at ninth, 
and then Poland at number 10. But they go a lot further then um, because they tell you the locations where you're most likely to be pickpocketed in these different cities and countries. And in Spain, it is La Ramblas in Barcelona, followed by, if you were looking at France, it would be around the Eiffel Tower. Pickpockets love it, particularly if you... um, of anything that looks overtly flashy like jewellery or cash or wallets or mobile phones. In Italy, it's the Trevi Fountain. In the Czech Republic in Prague, it's Charles Bridge. I was followed over Charles Bridge years ago when I was going for a walk. I was over there at some kind of a broadcast conference and for the space of about 15 minutes, this character followed me and followed me and followed me and followed me. And now I can understand why. Charles Bridge in Prague. Then the Colosseum in Rome. So unfortunately, uh, Rome gets at least two. And then over in Prague, the Old Town Square. So they're just giving some examples of where you're more likely to be um, pickpocketed. So the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain and the Pantheon in Rome also feature. So does the Dumo in Milan uh, and also areas in Florence. But um, France came second highest for the number of pickpockets mentioned but top place went to Italy. And then, of course, some of the places that they don't mention in the article that we all know of would be train stations, right? Or on subways or sitting at a cafe or a cafe table. You might be preoccupied chatting with someone. You might have a phone on the table. You might have a wallet. You might have the bag down on the ground. Um, there are also, a, there's a new thing called cycle by grabs where you're literally on the phone. Somebody comes along on a bike and they grab the phone from your hand and they're gone. Or the people that leave all of their... Um, you, you see, and I saw it the other day. I, I saw it the other day when I was in Edinburgh. No, I didn't. I saw it in London in the Covent Garden market. There was a security guard going around full time, right? And, and he was watching everything. You can jump in on this, particularly if you've been pickpocketed yourselves. But there was this woman across from me, right? And there was a bunch of them. And she had her bag on the back of her chair, right? On the back of her chair. Um and he tapped her on the shoulder. Yeah. This is a big thing. And he said, take it down. Yeah. She had no idea. She had forgotten it was there. She be, just forgot it was there. Totally going to be lifted. It's yeah. such a so dangerous the back thing of chairs yeah. is another one. We used to do that in primary school. Just that that's just, just that gave me a very random thought of I remember putting my school bag on the back of my chair in primary school. That's where we used to keep it. But yeah, terrible place to do it. Uh, another thing that people often do is uh, handbags. Um if you're if you're on a bicycle or if you something's over your shoulder as a handbag, people will just snatch the handbag straight off that. Um and left on tables. I was in Barcelona, I left a backpack by me on the train and I'd say I was literally I got. I stepped off the train. Went. Oh, my bag. I must go back and get it. And when I went back, it was gone. Literally yeah, in the space gone. of ten you actually seconds. Went back and it was gone. Ten seconds. Like the train doors hadn't even closed. I managed to get back on the train. But I told you the story a few weeks ago. The person who got off the airplane. I don't know whether it's Ryanair or Aer Lingus, and they left their wallet, wallet on the seat. Got onto everybody in the upper within like half an hour, forty minutes. Straight they, away. They actually went back onto the plane. It was gone. Yeah. I, 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 something similar happened to me in Malaga with the well, my passport. Now, thankfully, it didn't go. But uh, again, like just fell off, fell down as I was getting up out of my seat. Seat came out of the pocket, down the side of the chair. I walked through to secure passport control, and when I went to get my passport, nothing in the pocket. Okay. I think well, the list that I've been given bit. now is European one. There will yeah. be other international ones. South Africa is notorious, particularly. 
um, Johannesburg. Uh, Johannesburg. And the, I think one and, of the big, and Cape Town. And Cape Town. And I think um, I think in Nairobi in Kenya as well. There's a big thing at the moment where they're phone snatching. So they they will people that are um, like if you're if you're driving along in traffic and your arm is out the window because obviously it's roasting and there's no aircon. People have their hands out the window. Some guy will just come along and snatch whatever it is out of your hand. What is it going to be in your hand except the like watch? Like a phone or like what a, you be in a white fold of your hand out the window with the phone. I know, but it does happen. Well, the cycle by ones where they grab it out of your hand when it's at your ear. Yeah, this guy, what they do is they have spotters. So I saw this video on, on Facebook and one guy will go up and he'll kind of walk past and he'll do a bit of a recce to see what you have and then he'll say to the other fella, go in there now and there's something worthwhile. I think I remember when I when I did my year abroad and uh, we lived in student accommodation and there was awful, awful theft issues. But one of the things that they used to do is they used to put a cross so there used to be a guy who would go along in the afternoon and check in your window because I was on the bottom floor to see what you had inside your room and if there was something worth stealing they'd put a little cross is over Is that true? Is that one of true. these no, I'm telling you this is actually what happened to me while I was living there. So there was a wor- word put around to like if you see a cross over your door just wipe it out in case um, thing. but it was like I had to keep my shutters down pretty much all the time in case there were people Where was that? Window. It was in um, Aix, Aix-en-Provence which is just outside Marseille Yeah, I had my car smashed yeah. up in Paris actually because of the Irish plates Yeah, they ripped the they ripped the radio out and everything did first damage just oh because of, I don't know whether it would have Irish plates or what but that's what they did Yeah, it was a long time ago I think Paris is one of those cities that if you're from abroad and you think Paris being a gorgeous place but then if you actually live in France you begin to realise that Paris is there's quite a lot of Paris When does anybody ever get pickpocketed or robbed when they give somebody their phone and ask them to take a selfie? I wonder. Do I always do, wonder. And has anyone ever done a runner with their with their phone? You've got to be fast enough. Yeah, but they're gone. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, particularly know. if you're not great on your page. Don't be giving so. people ideas now. <laughs> no, I'd love to. Let, let's open the phone lines on that. See if people have been pickpocketed or robbed while on holidays and how it happened. Text 0868 104 106. Uh, one final note on that. I watched, I saw a guy operating um, some years back in Dublin. Uh, train stations are notorious. Certainly Houston. It was back in the day. We were all sitting around a coffee table chatting. There were eight or nine of us. They were all radio heads. I don't know what we were doing in Dublin, but somebody had a bag on the ground. And I saw this guy out of the corner of my eye with the Ireland's longest legs um, because he was at another table and he had his leg stretched out under the table. And I, I did nothing. I was just watching how he was operating. And the leg came in further and further and further. And he got his foot around the bag and he started pulling it outwards um, behind her back. Um, obviously, I interjected then like you do, being Superman and came to the rescue and what have you. But if I hadn't noticed him, would have been gone and nobody would have been any the wiser. Text 0868104106. Back after the break. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818104106. Cork's Red FM. I don't have the exact date as when I first chatted with John in the slaughterhouse, but it's got to be a month or perhaps six weeks. Maybe Patty O'Brien, the advocate on behalf of the elderly, uh, may have a more accurate date as to when we started talking about this story in the first place. Patty, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Would you say it's a month, six weeks, longer? Oh, it's much, it's much uh, longer, and um, I, I'm glad I'm doing this chat with you because everywhere I go, they're asking me, "How was that man in the slaughterhouse?" Yeah, it touched a nerve with situation. people. It touched their hearts. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, it was the thirty. It was the thirty-first of January, Paddy, and here we are now on That's the twelfth of April. That's right, and the situation. The situation is this: is that. Um, I had two meetings. We had two meetings with the corporation since then. And I would have to say this, that when we were told originally then that got the number of the house and the area, the people I spoke to said, no, this is going to take a long time. Explain to me that the vetting, 
vetting takes a long, long time. This is new thing, I believe, in relation to uh, new tenants going into corporation houses within the last two years. But, and this is it. So we up in the housing department uh, two, two weeks ago with John, of course, again. And all the questions, questions, questions again. And then I asked the whole home this one couldn't say, but it's going to take a long time. It's in the hands of the guardian. If the guardian are happy with all the questions, with all the answers that John gave, we will then will be contacted and we will meet a foreman uh, at, at this house and John can go into the house practically about 10 or 12 days after the house right. in the apartment. Has, got, he, got the okay. Okay. Has he been at the house in Madden's buildings? Has he been in it, outside it, anything like that? Outside it, outside, outside the house, yeah. yeah. He's been outside. As a, as a matter of fact, um, I remember um, I brought him out to the house and then he rang you and he talked to you in the programme. Yeah, he did. And he, what he said, and he said, I'm looking forward to having a cup of tea in my own house for the first time in my life. Yeah, That's yeah. pathetic. And is he, how is he bearing up? Is he exasperated by the delay or is he happy uh, I'd have to say this now. He's not. John is not. He's not actually, I mean, I, I expected a, a totally different reaction. And I'm with him, I telephone about twice a week. He's grand. There's no problem. There's no problem from John's end whatsoever. I would, would have to say this. And I think at one stage he told me he's going to be lonely leaving the place. Yeah, I so suppose he's, he's been there his whole adult life, I guess. But it's far from yeah, ideal. He, he, Oh, yeah, he's there, he's there uh, for 40, 42, 42 years. And I had to make it perfectly clear in doing this conversation, I'm not criticising the council for one moment because they were more than good to me, more than good. For instance, he was never on the waiting list. Nobody ever put him on the waiting list. That's right, list. yeah, he thought he was. No councillor, and the man was He was told away. he was, but he wasn't being he, told the truth. Exactly, and what happened was this. That's I shocking. got a phone call from, from a gentleman who informed me what was happening. This man was living in appalling conditions of the country. At half past two on a Monday, I was out in that house with that man at three o'clock. At half three, I was in the city hall, and the following week we had a meeting and it was absolutely deplorable, disgraceful that any person was treated this way. I mean, I, 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 it, I, I'm baffled when I go out there and I see all the lovely houses around the place and say, why did one of those people sort of report the situation? You're talking about another case and the circumstances in which this man was living in, is it? No, 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 the same. I'm still speaking about uh, John, that, that, that nobody. It's an, it's, yeah, okay. It's an abattoir, an abandoned one. It's it's no longer in operation. It, yeah. it hasn't been for That's years. It, and yeah. he's there with his couple yeah. of dogs and we'll videos available up on our on our website. Um, I- interestingly, that you know, it must be tougher on you these days because GDPR is closing an awful lot of doors to people like your good self. Do you still have access to be able to advocate on behalf of people? Um, you know the way they, they people are slower to share inf- share information. Oh, I have no problem. Okay, in some areas, all right. If I would, for instance, you get on to associate, you want to tell us that, no, no, I'm sorry. I'll have to, I'll have to ring so-and-so to uh, ask him, is it okay to give your telephone number? And I suppose yeah. there are rules and regulations. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to abide by those. But get back to us, ask me about John in relation to how he's feeling. Is he annoyed? 
Normally, if I was doing something for another person, an elderly person, and they were they were told they were getting the house, they'd be ringing me every day, what about the house, what about the house? But, you know, something, he's a very reasonable man. He's a very, very reasonable he's man. Patient, and he, you know something, he's, he's a decent man. He's such a decent man that he offered to pay, he offered me to take money from him, for what? For the petrol I drive around. He offered to pay for a tax, to, to pay um, a parking tax. He's a, a genuine, sincere yeah, man. I know. And I, I'm, I'm delighted he's going to get the house. I know, but, but it's, it's unfortunate that it's so slow, but you're saying this is not anything out of the ordinary. It's typically slow. No, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. You might have people out there now saying, oh, it should be this and the other thing. I'm going by the rules and regulations and I'm criticizing the corporation and thanking them for the way they had treated me okay. there. John was put on a list that, that he, they thought he was on a uh, uh, list for years and years no, and but years. He would but, be a special yeah. case and that's why he wouldn't oh, need he, to languish he, he on, a a on a list. Yeah. Okay. And, and I always, no matter where I am, no matter where I am, I always say, I would have to thank Neil Prendeville and well, thank Paul Burns what they've but, done but, okay, only, but, for, only for that. Well, when, when will he be in? Is there any kind of tentative date even? Well, well <clears throat> the situation is now, Neil, is that the last uh, questionnaire he completed, that's gone to the guardian. That's expected back. That could be taken another three or four weeks. And after that, it could take 10 days and he could be in the house. That's, so that's they're, they're, they're difficult at the moment now. Yeah. So when was the last questionnaire filled in? And the questionnaire was filled about uh, two week, two weeks ago. So we should have some kind ago. of news in the next fortnight or three weeks then. Uh, yeah, about that. But I suppose okay. at this point, in time, I think everybody coming to Ireland, they you know, from other countries, now are being vetted. They're all being vetted, and regrettably. A people, any customer to a corporation house now has to go through the same situation, being be vetted. And I'm not, I'm not, not quite honest because John, because John is happy, not, not happy. He's not upset. He knows he's getting the house and his mother, he knows their rules and regulations and just a procedure and the procedure must take place. Okay. And when, when I'm told, that's it. Okay, okay. Do stay in touch then, Paddy. Hopefully the next few weeks will make a difference. Thanks as always for your intervention and your help. So that's as much as I can tell you, lads. Watch this space for details. And of course, we'll have a a big day when John gets the key of his own little home in Madden's building. So text on that and all of the business. Text 0868104106. One man who knows how slowly things turn in Cork City Council is Councillor Ken O'Flynn. He joins me by phone. Ken, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How Thank, are you? Thanks for holding. There's a few different topics I wanted to address with you, but firstly, with regards to things moving slowly, um, I had been mentioning on air uh, that there's been big changes in Killarney with regards to busking bylaws, um, limiting buskers to two hours playing time in any one spot. Um, they also have to have a volume limit and they must have enough songs to be able to perform a decent set. I was telling people on air that I remember you proposing this on Cork City Council years ago. Yeah, I think we had a chat about six or seven years ago now, um, going back that long. Um, it was certainly in the lifetime of the previous council uh, where I wrote a bylaw. Um, it was a, a six-page document of bylaws uh, that went to the council floor on the recommendation of the then director of services. Um, councillors wouldn't take a vote on the um, bylaws and the introduction of bylaws because the advice from the management of City Council at the time was to wait and see what was happening in Dublin. Um, I held that... Um, so much for the off. rebel city doing its own thing, huh? Well, Neil, I tell you, you know, when you talk about frustration inside in City Hall, 
and, and you know the bylaw was written it was ready to go I had it looked over by, by two barristers I had I had I had written it based on what was happening in the United Kingdom and in, in France um, from bylaws that were available uh, there uh, I had checked it out and made sure that we, we, we could introduce these bylaws yeah. it was very similar to what's being after introduced in Killarney now You were is, suggesting though um, a one hour limit playing spot I was suggesting a one hour limit to move people on into and to allow buskers to have an opportunity at the best locations uh, I was suggesting that there would be a large repertoire of about 20 songs if they were performing, that there would be certain spaces allocated to them, that they wouldn't be taking up the entire street, as as, as we have seen in the past with people's <laughs> exhibits. You were also suggesting that they should audition at City Hall, probably well, you know probably creating a position for yourself as Ireland's Cork's answer to Simon Cowell, is it? Oh, <laughs> I've been called a lot of things now in my life. Never, never they would perform before you to see if they were acceptable oh, no, enough. Isn't no, look, I, I, um, essentially that's what happens in Covent Garden. If you want to get a busking job in Covent Garden, or you want to apply for to get the busking license in Covent Garden, or in certain areas around the West End of London, you have to have uh, you have to go before an audition committee to see if you're up to standard for an act, uh, and that allows a very high caliber of entertainers then into the city, which draws people. Look, we know we all know what busking can do for a city and an atmosphere that. The yeah, there's only so many covers of Ed Sheeran that I can handle, though, you know? Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, but there's also a negative effect of buskers. If you have a bad busker with high amplification that's standing outside your pharmacy or your, your shop for the next six hours and singing the, the same five songs and driving your, you and your staff absolutely demented. <laughs> Um, and, and look, I think there's been plenty of people on the radio, uh, on your station, te- telling you their stories of, of certain people. And I know there was there was a, there was a flute player who had maybe five or six bars of uh, the dawning of the day or something over and yeah. over and over, over and over again. again. Yeah. There's, there's but do you want them to guys. audition though? Look, what I want, what I want to do, honestly, Neil, what I want to do is regulate it, similar to what brought in Killarney, to allow everybody an opportunity to perform, to allow a better standard in the city, um, to make sure that we are providing proper spaces and we're not taking over the entire public realm. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. And we have to be respectful of our traders and those people that are trying to do business in the city uh, and accommodate them while keeping an atmosphere in the city. I don't understand why Galway, Dublin, and now Killarney, and I believe Kilkenny as well, have all introduced bylaws for Cork City Council, despite having that information at their, at their fingertips, despite have it, have it, having it in committee, despite having it for six years, have sat on this. Okay. Oh, and oh, that, yeah, was, that yeah. was facilitated, by the way, by, by left, right, and in between on Cork City Council or the elected officials, because okay. I couldn't get a backer for to introduce a bylaw. Okay, I'll pick it up after 11 with you. I hope you're in a position uh, because there's something else as well. But uh, just to this side of 11, one quick text that's come in already. I'm so sick of buskers in the city. They're so loud that when you walk past them, you can't hear yourself think. And half of them are banging out Ed Sheeran while the other half having a note in their heads. Are there any rules when it comes to buskers in the city? What they play, when they play? where they play, how loud they play. I don't mind the idea of busking, but at the same time, I don't want to be drowned out by them every time I go into the city, which is interesting because I love the whole idea of busking and live music in the city, but you want maybe a little bit more variety 
uh, for sure. But your thoughts, whether you're a punter in the city or working in the city, text 0868104106. We'll pick it up after 11. I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. With some of your texts with regards to busking, Eddie says it's good to see Cork City Council tackling the big issues and the big problems in the city. I think he's being um, tongue-in-cheek or facetious. Dara says, I don't think there should be a license, but definitely a song list. Same buskers singing the same ten songs. Uh, uh, Michael says, it would be a lot fitter for the councils in this country to maintain our roads and footpaths and let the bus Oscars get on with their life singing and playing music. That's how Boxcar Willie start, started off. It is indeed. It's also how the likes of Rod Stewart started off uh, busking and indeed our own Dylan Brickley, who I think is going to go on to really big things and started and still is busking on the streets of Cork. But just to finish that part of the, the conversation, do you want to address that, Councillor? The people who said there are bigger issues in Cork City Council that bust than busking. Well, of course, there's bigger issues in Cork City Council. Of course, there's bigger issues in the country. But every issue has to be addressed. And when you're elected as a member of Cork City Council, your job is to be uh, bringing forth ideas, bringing forth policies, bringing forth bylaws. Uh, and that's part of the duty that I have. And I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't, uh, you know. Um, it, it's all very well to say there's bigger issues to tackle, but there, there, you know, there are other issues that have to be tackled as well ensuring that we have a vibrant city, ensuring that we have good entertainment on the streets in the city, that people are being kept safe, that people are all getting a chance, that all buskers are being treated equally. One of the issues is that when you have a lot of, when you have people busking, they gather big crowds and sometimes it can get rowdy and messy. Not so much rowdy and messy. No, that happens at late at night, and you know, and you know, I've I've been the subject of listening to a guy at two o'clock in the morning and enjoying him immensely. Uh, back, <laughs> God, ten years ago, maybe. Um, but uh, you know, and that happens. But then you get contacted by people who are living in the city centre who tell who tell you that when the nightclubs finish, two o'clock in the morning, oh, there's a guy outside, right. with a guitar, outside with a guitar. So look, these so what would be what would be the cut-off time? Well, look, I think you have to be respectful of of residential locations and you have to be respectful of where people are, are, are working. Uh, and, you know, I think that, that would, those fine lines would have to be worked out. But give but, us an hour. Know. Is it nine, ten? Half ten? Well, I, 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 I think ten o'clock is a, is a good call-off or anything like that, being honest with you. Okay, you don't want to introduce a, a taxation policy on the money they raise. Can they keep that? It's not, a, it's no, not as if they, they have to <laughs> file invoices or returns to city council. No, absolutely, absolutely keep it. And, you know, the blessings of God in them, you know. Okay, um, okay. Look, it's about, it's about ensuring that every buster gets an opportunity. It's about ensuring that they have a safe space. It's about ensuring that it's safe for the general public, that you don't have large gatherings, that you don't have amplification, where you have a one guy dominating the entire Patrick Street with his amplifier. Um, not allowing other buskers or not allowing other entertainers to do their acts. Okay, but does it just have to be music? I mean, wouldn't we be encouraging people to get in there as magicians, as jugglers, as fire eaters? Mind, absolutely. I think that's very important as well. I think that's very important that you have a good variety as well in your city. A couple of three-card tricksters, you know, find the lady kind of fellas, moving, shuffling cards and things, no? Well, I'd be very cautious about these particular individuals. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm just stretching the point a bit. But but very very seriously, thank you for that. Will that be? be will you be putting that before council again? I'm bringing I, I'm bringing that back before council again, and I'm hoping that this council will will see the light and will 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 now follow. 
um, their sister cities around the country and um, be brave enough to make a decision now on that. You know? Okay, just talking about bravery or, or I don't know whether it would be bravery or, or what, but you, you responded to um, uh, an article online just before you go. It had to do with something that I was referencing on the air where the government is spending 30 million a week to house Ukrainian refugees and you responded online saying, pity they don't spend this on our own homeless. Do you regret that post? Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is it not I, incitement though? Maybe, well, God, Neil. You know, everybody is worried about how people feel, though. Um, I'm more interested in about what people are doing. I, I said to you uh, a number of weeks ago, maybe months ago now, at, we were approaching 50,000 Ukrainian refugees in the country. We're now just under 70,000. Actually, it's, it, I, you, need to check it, you need to check it again. There's 79,783 well, okay, now. Eight, 80, 80, 000. Okay, so 80,000, excuse me. Um, and actually, you're right, 80,000, according to the Examiner article the other day. Yeah. Um, we're now spending as, as a, was it 30 million a week uh, on facilitating refugees. We're facing a crisis where hotel, hoteliers want their space back. They do. We, we don't have, we don't, we, the Red Cross program, as far as I'm concerned, has failed uh, considerably. Um, no fault to the Red Cross, but just hasn't been manned, uh, hasn't been given enough resources for organisation and has fallen apart, that the Red Cross being the, the programme where inviting refugees in to live in your house, that fell off uh, by the wayside. I've Only 1,600 um, yeah, were actually 1600. responded but to. Now, Neil, can, I, can I be honest with you? I've spoken to people who are telling me that they're still waiting for calls back. Totally, yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the reality of it. Now, you know, we're, as I said before, we're one of the richest countries in Europe. We boast great GDPR. Uh, and yes, we have one of the biggest housing crises that Europe has ever seen. We have a situation now where there's 68 houses for rent, according to DAF.E, and that was effective last night. You know, you look at the commuter towns, Mallow and Middleton, there's one house in Middleton for rent, so to be on a commuter line. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with people every day that are telling me, Ken, I can't afford to put petrol inside in my car. I'm going up and down to the city. I'm living in East Cork, West Cork, yeah, North Cork. I know, but are you not you playing know? the populist card here? Like, because no, no, what I, are you I, going I to do with people fleeing war Neil, then? Neil, Neil, it's about reality. And there's something radically wrong when this country is taking 80,000 people and Denmark is 40,000 people. And Sweden has 50,000 people that, that they're taking in, that they're accommodating. And yet, we're in the middle of a housing crisis where we cannot accommodate our own people. If we didn't have a housing crisis, if we had our housing crisis under control, if we didn't have people sleeping in their cars, living in their mother and father's houses, couch surfing, going from one place to another, and believe me, they are there. They're on the phone to me day and night. And what are you and suggesting then? Is it stop? A new phenomenon. But let me just finish this point. A new phenomenon for me. Are, there's people ringing me, not about the council housing list, ringing me and saying, Ken, do you know, have you any insight with an estate agent, an auctioneer, that you can get me on their list just to get a viewing of a private house? That's and I can't argue with part. any of that. I, it I would just, be wrong I, of I mean, me to argue or disagree because it is true. No, but no, that I'd be struck down dead tonight that that is the honest truth. I can't believe the amount of calls that are coming into me asking me, do I know an auctioneer that I can pick up the phone and ring just to get a viewing of a property? Okay, okay, okay. That's, so that's so what, what's so the solution? When we can't handle and look after our own people, when we can't do that for our own people, how are we meant to do it for somebody else? Well, we are doing it to the tune of and 676 are, are, million. And, and, and look, Neil, you know, 
nobody is disputing that there's a problem in the Ukraine. Nobody is disputing that we need to bring in these people and protect people. But we have reached capacity. We have reached maximum capacity and gone over that. We don't have a plan. It doesn't seem to be managed very well by the minister or by the entire government. There's people going out and putting on their record, oh, look what we've done, look what we've done, and I'm, avail- I'm available for the presidency of Europe and I'm available for all these other, other jobs when I retire. And they're, and they're doing their pieces out in Europe. What they're not doing is looking after our own people. Okay, so what they're you're saying is enough is enough. We can take no more. We can't take any more. And look, we're talking, you know, 80,000 Ukrainian refugees. We're not taking into account the other refugees that are coming into the country. We're not taking into account the guys that are flushing, and we know this, that are flushing their passports in the loo of Ryanair and Aer Lingus flights coming into this country. We're not taking into consideration those that have landed in France and those that have landed in the UK that are now flying into Ireland seeking asylum. Under European law, as you know, what you're meant to do is if you're seeking well, asylum, genuine asylum, you're meant to claim that in the country you land. I know, I know, I know. Like, uh, that there's something wrong. And I'm telling you, we have not, we have not scratched the surface of the housing So why aren't, you, why aren't you marching behind the banner then at the various rallies of Irish First? Well, look, I, you know... Is that I, a bit too far right for you? I have... I haven't. I don't think anyone could ever call me right-wing. I think people have tried in the past, but I don't think anyone could call me right-wing. It's not about, it's not about um, non-nationals. It's not a question of what the colour of their skin is, what religion or what God they pray to, or if they pray to a God at all. It's about the fact that we have a government that has mismanaged this, has taken off, has bitten off more than it can chew, cannot solve housing for our own people. Okay. And yet they're bringing in people continuously. Okay. And I think there's something seriously wrong as well, Neil. When you're bringing in people, you're putting them up in accommodation, you're feeding them, and you're giving them full social welfare and full medical cards. And yet you have the likes of, and say, John in an abattoir yes. who's being there um, vetted there for a fine once. Example, no. And well done to Paddy O'Brien for all the work he's done. Yeah. I'm going to give him a buzz afterwards, actually, yeah. and see if I can push it on. Um, but... There you go. That's a prime example. Our own people being forgotten about. Okay. And you know, I, I, and I think I told you this story before. I met a woman down in Blackpool and she said, Ken, there's nobody giving me 400 euros a month for keeping my daughter and son-in-law inside in the front room and mm. their two kids. Mm. That's mm. a homeless couple. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's all something right. Serious, but there's something seriously okay. wrong that you're able to do this. And then we're wondering why our A&Es are full. We're wondering why we can't get a doctor's appointment when you're flooding doctor's offices with extra medical cards. When you're putting in, uh, when when your child is falling behind in the school, when we're flooding in extra children into a school, and no, that's Jesus Almighty. You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to see any child go, be left behind, whether the Ukrainian or whether the Irish or whether they're from North Africa or, or Afghanistan. Mm. But you have to have the resources set up, and the problem is, is that it's been mismanaged by government. They've been trying to be the good boys of Europe, while one particular individual is looking for a job in Europe and trying to get trying to get his name out there as the best boy in Europe. Mm. Okay. And who's suffering? The ordinary people that are paying tax. Okay, so you're, you're asking for a dose of reality, really, more than anything else in face facts. Look, okay. it is a, it's, about be, it's about being able to do what you can do. Okay. And right. we've, taken off, we've taken on far more than we, can, than, than, we can, than we can handle. We haven't sorted out our own people. We have people 12, 13, 14 years on housing lists in city council. You'll see the red tape that's going through where, where Paddy O'Brien spoke about. You can go off now and you have to get a guard. You have to get a guard. It would, be, it would go some way to help that if City Council turned the houses around faster than 75 weeks, in all fairness. Neil, there's another conversation we need to have. 25% of houses that are offered every month in Cork City Council are refused. 
and they refuse on the grounds the garden is too small. It's not close. But then they should be knocked off the list. Well, they are. They're taken off for two years. And we introduced a system where you have to bid in that house. You have to go on to the CBL and say, yes, I'm interested in number one Main Street Cork. And yes, we have people rejecting it when they've applied for it. That's insane, though. We have to go back out for guard betting as well. I'm telling you, but if somebody refuses a council property, how many how many times are they allowed to refuse? Look, you refuse and you and you lose your opportunity for two years. Okay, you so you're automatically take, suspended for two years. You're suspended for two years. Yeah, well, that's got to be a good take, thing. You can't take people off. Uh, take, take people off the list that are have a genuine need for for houses. Well, you if know, you refuse a perfectly good house, surely you should go to the bottom of the list. Well, I agree. I agree. Agreed. And that's what we're going to have to start doing. Okay. And we're going to have to be start more callous about things as well. All right. Covered uh, a lot of ground this morning. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Councillor Kenneth Flynn. Yeah. Text 0868 Your thoughts on that are welcome. Pick up the phone on 0818 I hope Anne can hold on back after the break. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 Red FM. Uh, lots of texts on busking calls as well. Anne, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are okay, you? Okay, so I'm good, thank you. So Killarney is introducing new bylaws. I believe they already have them in Galway and there's some kind of a licence fee that you have to pay in Dublin. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are I think that's wrong. These young people, it's, it's a delight to walk down the street in Dublin or Galway or any town in Ireland and hear young people playing music on a, any day of the week, but usually at the weekend. And to tell you the truth, a lot of them have to do it now for to subsidise their, their uh, living in the cities and going to college. True enough, um, yeah, true enough. Because not everybody wants to work in a pub or, or a restaurant at one o'clock in the morning, you know. Um, but it is a delight to hear them. And, and okay, some of them might play louder than others and maybe that could be a, something that they could deal with. But, um, but I definitely think it's wrong. You know, there, there's enough things happening in young people's lives without this. That having that and not being able to go out and play a, a guitar or play a fiddle or whatever. Did any of your family ever do a bit of busking? I did. My, my two sons, two of my sons, uh, bus, busked when they were in college. And uh, was, I suppose it was uh, either cigarette money or, or um, pint money, I don't know. Did they make handy <laughs> money, did they say? Or would they tell you? No, they, no, they didn't make a lot of money, but they had fun and they were out with their, you know. Well, they mightn't tell you for fear you'd ask them to hand some of it up. Uh, well, it was too late. They were away from home, so I wasn't getting anything. <laughs> Did they play that. instruments, they, though? They enjoyed it. Yes, yeah, they played guitar, both of them, yeah. Because there's another uh, cohort now that just use backing tracks, right? And all they do is sing. And unfortunately, not all of them can sing. And the best they can offer is a, a backing track. Is that, e- is that technically even busking? Well, I don't know. There's a, there's a young girl who sings in our town and she's backing track and she's the most beautiful voice. Okay. It's, there's people just stand around and listen to her. She's a fantastic young girl. Um, I don't know her now or anything, but she's I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's not that people don't you know? want buskers. They just want, obviously, they want someone who's talented. But they want yeah. to, you know, they want to limit, because some buskers are complaining that some people hog the best spots, you know. That they have only X amount of time in one place, then they have to move. I think we want to yeah, have that I, kind of atmosphere. I suppose first, first, up, first up, best dressed, you know, if there, whoever's there first in the morning. But do you not think that start? there should be a law that you have a set amount of time that you can play at any one spot? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think, well, you won't stay there for eight hours anyway because nobody would be able to perform for eight hours. And yeah. I think if you're not a good singer or you're not a good musician, 
you won't get the money, so you won't go back because True you'll enough. soon get the yeah. message, you're not good, goodbye. Yeah, cream you know? rises to the top. Well said. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Thanks yeah. for that. A yeah. lot of text on this. I think Cork City Council should be more interested in housing our own people who are homeless and the amount of houses that are boarded up and cutting down on rates of shops and let more shops open up and let us entertain the people who come and visit our country, says Johnny, who's a busker. Ali says, busking adds a huge atmosphere to the city. Some of the performers you... You'd pay to see. You'd pay to see them. Um, um, they're so good. Cork City Council are having a laugh. They're so focused now on this and not the reality of our housing situation and our homeless. Dylan says, and this could well be Dylan Brickley himself, although I can't say with any amount of certainty. He says, I'm a musician and I often busk around Ireland. I can honestly say that I think it's a bad idea to have a bylaw. Most buskers couldn't afford the 90 euro license in Dublin, let alone compete alongside musicians who are, to my mind, professional buskers that hold spots for their professional busker pals and they blank any newcomers and they can afford professional equipment. Their amplifiers also limit the amount of musicians that can busk on one street because they're too loud. It is literally becoming an institution in Ireland. If homeless begging license was issued at 90 euro apiece, there would be plenty of people willing to pay for them, dress down and earn a living off the backs of well-meaning good people too. Well, that's another topic for another day. Grace says, leave the buskers and the street performers alone. It's a city and we're coming into the summer. Let's enjoy it while we can. It's not about banning buskers, lads. I mean, I, I think there's nothing nicer than hearing music played live. I'd like to have more of our own music played, though, rather than pop or ballads or James Taylor or a bit of Adele or Ed Sheeran. You, I'm lo- you wouldn't have liked me. Well, I'd love lo- <laughs> to say it like, but when I was in Edinburgh, everywhere... Everywhere it's bagpipes, oh, no. and I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But I would like to see a bit more of our own traditional stuff going on on the streets. Bagpipes and name tags; these are two things we're disagreeing on this morning. I actually bust a few years, bus, busked uh, when I was, I think it was like 16 or 17, and myself and a cousin and two of us had guitars, and we had no way of making money. Couldn't get a job. Did so you make? Said, did you make good money? I tell you, it depended on the time and where you were. Um, I was across the way from the catwalk. Uh, we used to busk across the way from the catwalk and get into one or two in the morning. You'd make fair money, like would you? But, yeah, because the girls would ask make for something. 50 bucks, well, the girls would ask for something, and then you'd play the girls, and the lads would give you the money then for what the girls asked you for, because they'd be happy. To, you know what I mean? So the girls would say, "Oh, play whatever," and you'd say, "Yeah, no bothers," and you play it. And then the lads would be like, "Oh, it's great." Now, Did you ever get any grief? Uh, yeah, you always get fine fellas acting the Egypt, but like never anything like never physical or anything like that. Just fellas kind of shouting or roaring at you or kind of. No one tried to rob you or anything, no. No, no. I suppose the thing is, we used to always, and I know a lot of buskers do this. Like you know, what you see in the bag isn't necessarily what they've taken in for that day. I think. I think on our best night, we made about eighty or ninety quid. The secret um, to good busking is don't leave all the money in there because people think you're getting a lot. And also, if there's more people are more likely to, to, to nick it. I remember a fella came up to us once we were busking on the corner of uh, by the GPO and he said uh, he said you'll never play what I want you to what I want to play I said go on try me he said I want you to play Feeder which is kind of like uh, people might remember Feeder from years ago kind of an indie rock no. band just so happened I was a big fan of them so I said yeah no bother and I built it out a few chords and he gave me 20 quid he was like so shocked that I remembered this kind of like uh, and it just so happened that I like, I, it could have been anybody else and I wouldn't have known them but yeah, yeah okay. that was my biggest uh, biggest ever single land was so if I were to send you downtown of a night mic'd up and everything <laughs> busking would you do it <laughs> You're putting me on the spot now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, why not? Like, all for the love of of the program. You would, of course. 
I'll let you sit there and yeah, think about it. Yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, let me think about it. Actually, there's an interesting article that makes it Times UK this morning with regards to putting limits on people. You know Portofino? This is the Italian village. Um, best avoided, incidentally. It is, it is picture perfect, beautiful, but there's just too many people. I don't know if you've been there. You may agree or disagree with me. Um, and it's just a bottleneck for people, tourists and cars and... Uh, I was there and I, I don't want to go back. It's just way too busy and way too tight. But they're saying now that they're going to fine people €275 Euro, um, if you hang about too long. Uh, it's just so popular now. They're introducing a no waiting zone for pedestrians, not cars. This is pedestrians uh, to oh, to stop overcrowding in the village. Um, it'll be €275. Euro. They have a red zone at the Italian Riviera beauty spot to avoid thronging restricted areas where visitors tend to pause for selfies and hang around for too long. I don't know if they're going to bite the hand that feeds them. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. Busy with texts this morning. Neil can't come on air, but uh, I have a taxi. I picked up two Ukrainian girls yesterday in Ireland since November. Not working, but going off to Alicante on their holidays, says the taxi driver. Another one here. Bravo, Ken O'Flynn. At last, someone spoke out for the Irish people. And another one. Uh, Hi, Neil. Well said by Ken O'Flynn. We need more more people like him speaking out. Um, and he's saying we need to face facts and face reality at this stage. Text 0868104106. Facing facts is right. We have a serious problem with heroin. And we heard on the air yesterday, or last week from Father Peter McVeary says that heroin is bad, but crack cocaine is just around the corner and crystal meth, of course, big problems that we also will have in Ireland if we haven't already. It's become a big problem in Dublin and will down here as well. So how do you deal with that? The amount of people who unfortunately find themselves in the throes of addiction and the grip of it got them by the neck and they just can't break free. Well, one would suggest that maybe uh, an injection centre um, in the city. I was mentioning this just be uh, just when I came on the air at nine this morning. Um, in fact, somebody texted to say, Neil, you said if there is an injection centre, it's a done deal, Neil. Grattan Street or the surrounding areas is where they will put it. So that was an interesting text. But we have a delegation of five councillors, city councillors, members of Angarda Shikona, HSC officials who will be going to Lisbon to see how they do things in Portugal on a fact-finding mission. One of those will be Colm Kelleher, the Fianna Fáil councillor, and he joins me by phone. Colm, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Is it, is it a done deal? I mean, is it going to happen, and is there a location? Somebody's suggesting that it will be around the marsh in the inner city. Do you know anything about that? No, so look, it's, it's, it's not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, I personally wish it was a done deal. Uh, all the omens are pointing in the right direction for the um, implementation of uh, a SIF, as they're commonly known around the world, a supervised injection facility. Um, there has been no sites, um, and I just reiterate, no sites even suggested as of yet. Uh, the one in Dublin is going ahead. They ran into issues in relation to planning permission on that a number of years ago, and that's been sorted now. I've spoken with the party colleagues about the Dublin City Council, and they're facing the same, you know, you know, voice that we're facing here yeah. in the city. Um, there, you, you mentioned Grattan Street. You were mentioning it on the marsh. There has been no site okay. identified as of yet. Okay. It, this will be, and as I said before, um, this will be uh, through the HSE. 
um, and there is a delegation from the HSC travelling with us to Lisbon um, and you know they will identify a site whether it be on a medical campus which is what I'm personally in favour of um, and you know they'll, they'll have to go in for planning permission and so forth and so that. So it would be college. adjacent to CUH or part of the Mercy or the South then maybe is that it? One medical campus within the city will oh, be north. Within of okay, within the, not not a greenfield site then, no, no, okay, no, no, okay, not, not a greenfield site. And one of the things that we are looking at, and um, it's it's something that was brought to my attention a number of weeks ago there, and we're we're looking at feasibility as well within they have done it in Portugal is a mobile SIF. So this would be exactly like what it says in the tin, a mobile set. So that exists. I've seen that in operation in Nice, incidentally. They just yeah. pull up. It's a very big ambulance, for want of a better word. Massive thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, 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 like I'm sure if you've ever seen those law and order special victim units thing, those, those, those command centre big, you know, Winnebago yeah. type, type That's facility. the kind of thing. So, well said, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it's like. So how do they, you're going to Lisbon to see how they're doing it. Do you have any idea? Is that in a city centre location in Lisbon? Uh, there's one on the medical campus, and we we're, we're looking at the, the mobile one as well. You know what I mean? It's it's basically a learning site visit. You know, the, in 2015, our own government passed the Misuse of Drugs Amendment Bill to allow for supervised injection facilities. Now, I've long been an advocate for them, as you know. The, um, when I was Lord Mayor, it was uh, the team of my morality was a uh, you know uh, addiction and recovery, and um, I I'm actually quite pleased to see that the Lord Mayor today has continued it on and uh, we'll be leading the delegation over. Um, we do have, from the medical side of you, I suppose, from the reserve side of the house, we have Dr. John Sheehan, former Lord Mayor as well. Yeah. Uh, he will be coming. Members uh, of Vanguardia yeah. Shikana, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Vanguardia the Lord Shikana. Mayor herself will go. But where's the democracy in all of this, where people who would object to the positioning of an injection centre, say in a city centre or an urban area, and all of the, the hassle that that might potentially bring? Well, the democracy will be in a planning application. Anyone, any planning application, whether you want to build a shed out your back garden or you want to build, you know, a house, a planning application has to go in and members of the public would be allowed to, you know, put submissions or objections through the, the, the normal channels in relation to that. But, you know, this, this scaremongering of, you know, not my back garden and this is what happened above in Dublin and it hit a brick wall, this will not be in anyone's back garden. This won't be in the residential area. What we're looking at is on a medical campus, you know, maybe the likes of Finbar, CUH, Mercy, you know, uh, maybe above the, you know, um, the old orthopedic. We haven't identified it yet, and that's for the HSE to identify. But it will be on a medical campus. Like, the whole idea of, of a SIF is, you know, to allow people, uh, uh, you know, who are in the throes of addiction, and in this instance, heroin, which is, you know, very prevalent on our streets at the moment, um, a fixed site for a supervised injection facility, and, you know, the possibility of a mobile site. And they can come and I they know. can inject yeah. drugs safely under medical supervision. Like we've all heard the horror stories. I mean, when I was Lord Mayor Neil, um, you know, there was a poor gentleman lost his soul in, in the toilets in the North Main Street car park. Um, it's, you know, we, we, we then have, you know, death from drug poisoning. We have the risk of drug litter around the, the streets. Um, only a number of months ago. What is that? The risk of disease transmission through um, oh, shared know, needles or people, children like, picking them up and things? Exactly, the likes of hepatitis, the likes of HIV and, you know, other, other transmissible diseases such as that. And, you know, like a number of weeks ago, and I did highlight it at the previous JPC meeting, I'm former chair of the JPC myself, and the current chair, the Deputy Lord Mayor Councillor Damien Boylan, will be coming with us as well uh, to Lisbon. Um, I saw open uh, uh, drug dealing on the street Sunday evening on Patrick Street, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, um, you know it's, it's, 
It's been isn't, isn't, there, isn't there a bit of an old message though that we can't we can't beat it so we need to put somewhere where people can bring their own heroin and shoot up well look um, I led a delegation as Lord Mayor to San Francisco last year and I deputised on behalf of the Lord Mayor this year back out to San Francisco sister cities and they had the mobile uh, supervised injection facilities and they had the needle exchange right outside City Hall in uh, in San Francisco and as you said at the onset there you know um, other people have mentioned that it's not just heroin that we're facing we have crack cocaine we have you know in, in San Francisco they have this new drug called fentanyl yeah. and my god Neil I was walking down the streets in San Francisco and literally like looking at a character of the walking dead yeah. and you're looking you're looking you're looking at this individual some son some mother's son or some you know uh, mother's daughter and in the throes of addiction okay. um, and even in the states they they have they have seen a massive redu- reduction of drug, uh, open drug use. And the whole idea of this, like, this isn't the silver bullet. This isn't going to solve that. But the idea is to reach out to them with healthcare officials that might be able exactly, to get them into... Re- exactly, yeah, and yeah. have the wraparound services. So that when they go in the front door with the, the, the narcotics that they've purchased illegally, they are supervised under professional medical um, professionals. They will be afforded all the opportunities for safe needles and stuff like that to reduce, you know, a disease and transmission yeah. and through unhygienic. In, injection, yeah. but also that they will be given the wraparound services in relation to drug treatment programs, in relation to but people can't get on them, there aren't anywhere there's nowhere to go for rehab, what's there is full. What's there is full and uh, something I call for myself as Lord Mayor as well is that we do... So there's a bit of the cart and the horse here, it's saying come on in and inject safely and then we'll get you in somewhere, but you can't. Not necessarily not necessarily, like the, you know David Lane, the HSC, the likes of Coonvera, you, you know, we do have wraparound services in the city um, and the local drug um, and alcohol task force supports the introduction of supervised injection facilities within the city. We do have treatment centres to lengthen better the country. They are oversubscribed. Sometimes they are abused, you know, people that maybe, you know, fall in ill with the law, they go yeah. to treatment centres. Straight into treatment, yeah. yeah. Exactly, you know, straight into treatment, stuff like that. I'm not saying that we have, you know, a, a perfect healthcare system in relation to the treatment of drugs within Ireland. I don't think any 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 modern European society, uh, excluding Portugal, uh, does. And this is the whole reason why we're going out to Portugal because a number of years ago the Portuguese decriminalised the use of small. Uh, uh, drug possession. I'm talking about now, you know, the poor soul who's got, you know, uh, a, a deal on him for his next fix. Uh, whereas in Ireland at the moment, if they're arrested, they'll be taken to the Bridewell or they'll be taken to Anglesey Street, they'll be reprimanded, they'll be charged, they'll be brought before a judge. Whereas in Portugal, they'll be taken to a healthcare facility. Is that for a possession of a small amount of heroin? A small amount of heroin, okay. yes, in okay. Portugal. Yeah. And, 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 and you've been quite open and spoke very openly and strongly about heroin and uh, the scourge of it within your own greater family uh, and have talked about your, your brother recovering. How, how, did, how did he come back from that? It's a long, long road. And as I said, it was uh, in fairness, you know, I don't know if he's listening now, and I know he wrote the article in today's examiner as well, but when I was Lord Mayor, I was only in office a couple of weeks, and uh, Owen English uh, did an interview with me, and I kind of basically told him the story with permission of my brother, Don, and, he, you know, um, and it's basically, you know, touched the card with so many people around the city. Like, there isn't a family in this country, Neil, and I don't care what anyone says, there isn't a family or an individual in this country that doesn't know someone that's in the throes of alcoholism, in the throes of gambling, so true. in the throes of drug, drug, drug addiction, yeah. and, you know, people, people are very quick to judge, and, you know, as former first citizen of, of, of Cork, I just wanted to show, you know, here I was, 
you know, sitting in the highest office in the city and a couple of months prior to that or a couple of years prior to that, my own brother was sitting in a, in a cell above a Ratmore Road. Do you know what I mean? Chilly. So, it, you know, it, 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 and it just, well, and in fairness, the, the two Norries, I went to their podcast afterwards and I, 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 I told the story there, but the amount of people that actually contacted the Lord Mayor's office that time, Neil, and said, you don't realise what's happening with my family and the amount of people that we've guided through the healthcare okay. professionals yeah. within Cork City. And that's what we're trying to do because all these people you may see openly drug dealing or down an alley or, you know, a, a term that I personally hate but a lot of people use, you know, um, smackhead, um, or, you know, or junkie. Mm. Um, you know, people are so quick to judge when they walk past them. That is some mother... They're a brother, father, mother, sisters, you exactly. know, yeah, dad. and they need uh, help. And they've treated it medically in Portugal. Their crime has been reduced massively. Their 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 unhygienic um, needle injections. Yeah, it won't and work without health rehab places, though. It just won't work. One hundred percent, and we need more of them. Okay. And you know that's that, that's another. Can you, okay, so can you come back to me when you get out when you get back from that in May and see how it went? One hundred percent. And look, I'm I, I'm delighted that because this is something that I was talking about before I went into the Lord Mayor's office. And uh, since I've left the Lord Mayor's office, I'd like to personally thank the Lord Mayor today for for leading the delegation out there. Um, Rebecca Lockery and Cork City Council has done massive work um, with this. She's a former HSC liaison for Cork City Council. The chief executive in Cork City Council has well, been leading this massively. Well, as well, the Lord Mayor would want something done about it because she recently said that she didn't feel safe in Cork City. So that would be some way of maybe making her feel safer and others safer as well. Would you agree? Well, I can't comment on how someone may feel inside in the city. I feel perfectly safe walking around the city. I'm a big heavy man. Maybe you know safer I mean? for a man than a woman, perhaps. Exactly. You know what I mean? Okay. So look, it's all open to interpretation. But okay. again, I would like to thank the Lord Mayor, okay. thank, thank the Chief Executive and David, uh, David Lane in the HSC and the members of Angarda Shea Corner that are travelling with us. Okay, final question for you. Fin- okay. We can get it over the line. Here. Okay, final question for you. I don't know whether you know or not but what in the name of God is happening with the old blood bank site on Leitrim Street, which has been just sitting there since I was in short pants? Do you have any idea what's going on with that site? Would that not be ideal or is it privately owned or what? I, I honestly don't know the ownership of it. I know that it has been line idle for a number of years now. A number of years? Like, you know, since try, you were in short pants. Try you know, 30, you 40 years. Before, you were in short pants long before I was Well, there you go. That tells you how long it's been sitting there. No, but seriously, though, it seems yeah, like an ideal yeah. location for something. Never seen a building that shouldn't be sitting there. Is it HSE owned or what? I, I'm not too sure, to be quite honest. Okay, you know, they're right. well, probably part of the old, maybe sort of health and stuff like that. But like that, this comes back to, you know, are we going to have a fixed... Um, SIF, are we going to have a okay. mobile SIF? Okay. We don't know yet. It, this is a fact-finding mission, and I would be more than happy to come back and speak with you on your show when we do when we do come back from our travels. Okay, look forward to it. We're going around the 14th uh, of next month for uh, two days, um, and um, you know there's five members of the council heading over. Okay, look forward to it. Talk to you and then. So forth and so on. Thank you, Neil. Please for now. Thank you, Colin Kelleher. Text 0868104106. Particularly if you can, uh, well, if you've got an opinion on an injection centre or whatever the case may be get in touch but also if anybody knows exactly what is going on with the old blood bank site I mean it's there I may have said already no point repeating text 0868 104 106 This is the Neil Prenderville Show 
text and WhatsApp 086-8104-106. Gorks Red FM. Bylaws and busking wouldn't uh, ban or abolish busking. It would just put manners on the amount of time and the amount of songs they play and the volume of which they play it. Kevin says they do it in Galway and Dublin and you can't play over a certain decibel level. Galway, you must be able to play at least 20 songs and you're allowed only play two hours in a spot. Remove the amps and loud stuff in Cork. I busk with no amplification. It's hard to tell if uh, with a backing track that they're actually playing the thing or not. Yeah, backing tracks are different though, aren't they? Where you have people just singing to a backing track. But it, Kevin believes that's okay too. But is it pure busking? Maybe it is. Dylan says, busking adds a great atmosphere to the city. Cork wouldn't be the same without it. The amount of tourists I've met over the last few months saying the musicians they've heard on the streets of Cork just made their trip. Delighted to hear that. I think that might be Dylan Brickley's text actually, to be honest. I'm delighted to hear the tourists are saying that the street musicians made their trip because there was somebody in Dublin recently who was just going back to America and was talking to some people and said we had a great trip in Ireland but to be honest with you we wasted two days in Cork and if we had our time over again we wouldn't have bothered with it so at least that's a bit more positive Uh, Seriously, says Carly yet a debate on housing was voted down in Cork City Council last week it is baffling what they choose to debate Refuse to debate housing, but yes to a debate on busking. You know, you're talking about musicians and where people get a break. I remember talking about this on the air just before I leave you for the days that, that day that's in it. We were part of Irish Music Month in March, right? And at the time, we were promoting a new local hero search that was going on nationally. There's a big prize involved in this. Ten grand guaranteed radio airplay across the country. Um, song released on a record label and radio play right across the country at all the different radio stations. We were all part of that. Um, And the final takes place on the 25th of uh, April. But the idea is to, you need to whittle it down to six finalists across the country. Uh, And we've just found out that one of the Red FM entries has been selected as the final six. We have six finalists and that is Darian June. So just quickly, Darian joins me by phone. Darian, good morning. Hi, how are you? Congratulations. You excited? (laughs) I am buzzing. Oh my God, I literally cannot believe it. (laughs) You're that talented girl. You've made the final six. And I think you're playing Moncrief tonight, are you? I am, yeah. I mean, like, I just cannot comprehend what's going on at the moment. So this is just incredible news. (laughs) Pinch yourself. Pinch yourself. How long are you performing? How did you start? Yeah, well, I've been doing music since I was like a kid. I did piano lessons when I was at seven and started writing music kind of even like lyrics when I was like a child as well um, went to college studied music for four years and kind of there got into producing and writing and gigging and you know now I'm like releasing my own music and you know doing a gig tonight and it's just it's just an amazing I know I know and the revolution in technology has made so much of this possible for people like your good self you know yes absolutely yeah I mean I've been producing for maybe four or five years now and that just gives me so much um, liberty and freedom to do what I want with my own music. Gotta ask you, did you ever busk? Because we were talking about busking this morning. No, but you know what? I never had, I never really had the confidence to do it. It's, it's a hard thing to do. To get out and stay, or get out on the street and just like perform and it's, it's a scary thing to do. Yeah, they're talking about some sort of bylaws to, you know, get them to stay in one place for a limited amount of time, having enough songs to sing. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, we don't want to lose that kind of buzz in the city, I know. Or indeed in your own hometown of Kinsale, for that matter. 
Yeah, I mean, buskers are what keep Cork City alive and it'd be awful to try and regulate that, you know. I mean, musicians go through so much on a daily basis anyway that, you know, to take away something like that or just make it even a bit more difficult for them, it's just, it's really bad. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to be, you say you'd be nervous to busk. Will you be nervous in Cypress Avenue tonight? <laughs> um, I, you know what, I'm, I'd definitely be a bit more excited than nervous. I think, you know, I, I'd definitely be a bit nervous. I'd get, like, a bit of jitters, but... More excited, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. because this this is your life path, isn't it? You just want to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You're on a road to somewhere. Yeah, you know, I think over the last couple of months, especially since I I started releasing music, it's just been such an amazing journey. And things pop up and you never expect what's going to come. And, you know, there's days where you're thinking, oh God, like, am I doing the right thing? And (laughs) is this good for me? But then stuff like this happens and it just makes it so much more worthwhile. I think we have incredible talent coming out of Cork and you're amongst them. Can I play the new single? Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Uh, well, no, because there are there is two in total. There's prom queen and love ain't cool. I think I got prom queen. Are you okay with that? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Good luck tonight at Cypress Thank Avenue you so supporting much. Moncrief, and in the finals on April 25th. All right, we'll be rooting for you. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone at Red FM for all their support. Everyone's been just amazing. Take care, Darian. Good luck. Thank you. Bye.
always find the end of songs like that tricky when I haven't heard them before but I love that synthetic bass I really do uh, Darian June congratulations girl she'll follow in the footsteps of Lyra and the likes of Stephanie Rainey and many more like that just on busking I thought this was the way already uh, why is something that is so frowned upon in our country huge in others busking in Japan or countries I've seen they have time slots and they respect them well that's exactly what they're talking about suggesting here time slots so everybody gets a fair crack at the better spots um, they bring this up every two years says Richard Cork Business Association uh, but yet they have business members themselves with businesses in the city who blare awful tripe onto the streets themselves through dodgy old speakers we buskers like to take pride in our achievements in the art but try to spew aspiring artists over at every hurdle that's what happens this creates a barrier that will stop plenty of young musicians and many incredible artists making their way through busking initially onto bigger things. Mandy says the council will want to go away and actually do some work, the work they're supposed to. There's a fine big hole at the end of Silver Springs if they want to do auditions. You know, talking about holes, I see an article this morning out of San Francisco where, I haven't got it in front of you, but Claire mentioned it. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is out on the streets filling potholes. Wouldn't it be great to see Cork politicians out filling potholes? I hear you shout. Wouldn't it be great to see anybody uh, filling potholes? I think Schwarzenegger is on the streets of Los Angeles. He could do it all on his own, actually. (laughs) He's that fit. Ruby says, leave the buskers alone. They are fine without anybody's input. Because besides playing the fiddle, what do the the council actually know about music? from being on the fiddle. I love it. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.